You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, The Running Public. Where are you at that it's so gloriously warm? Uh, Nashville, Tennessee. Mm, that explains the accent. <laughs> yeah. Kirk, Becca, Becca Kirk. Good to meet you. Hello, Becca. Nice screen name. You get to customize those. We asked that you come up with something real fancy. Bracken, do you have all that shit weather right now? I just jumped into what you guys were talking about. It's nasty here. It's just like crazy windy. We had shingles blow off the, the roof last night. And things are things are wild right oh, now. Wow. My ga- garbage cans almost blew all the way across the street into the lake, mm. which would have been a problem. That would be a problem. Holy cow. Yeah. How far are you from your parents' house, Becca? Like 10 minutes. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Yeah, it's not far at all. So are you Franklin or not? Uh, we're actually Nashville is our address. Oh, yeah. you are? Yeah, we're in Bellevue. How did you guys get uh, get put in touch then? So I want to be brought up to speed how this wonderful conversation is going to come to be. I mean, he found us, honestly. How did you find us? Uh, Ross. Ross Wiener. Oh, okay. He follows Chad Wright, and Chad had talked about it. And then I think there was like a a video, or like I, I don't know what there was, something about it. And Ross watched it, and he's like, "That's something I could see myself not being able to do." And so he signed up for it. And I just said I would train him for it. And then he's like, "It's in Franklin, Tennessee." I'm like, "Well, I have family there. Maybe I'll crew you." <laughs> and then after we, because I was coming off knee surgery, yeah, at the time. And then as we started training together, I'm like, you know what? If you don't mind, I'll take along. And then that's how it happened. Oh, wow. Crazy. It was probably the uh, Greg Armstrong video. I think that Jesse did. Um, We had some people like picture it. Oh, yeah. So I think that was, that's the one that kind of most people stumble across us. Yeah, that would make sense. So Kirk, Beck and I actually don't know each other, really. (laughs) Okay. I figured you did. For some reason. Well, I mean, I've 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 played in her backyard for like twelve hours. <laughs> I've met her dad, and I've had dinner there twice. By little kid standards, we're best <laughs> friends. <Yeah. but laughs> in a much more real sense, we've probably spent five total minutes of our lives talking. Yeah, <laughs> he's usually running. Yeah, that's true. She checked me into the race both years. That was the extent of our conversation. Well, I guess just to bring me up to speed then, because here's the thing. So obviously, I assume you don't listen to our podcast, um, Becca, but this has been like kind of a journey for Bracken coming back from knee surgery, going to his first like ultra in which he plans to get like a he had performance goals and expectations. And it was a big deal. Right. So he's brought the listener along for like the last what Bracken three to four months in your training and lead up. And I would say Mm -hmm. at least. And he's spoken so damn highly of the event um, and the people along with it. And now, so we have you here, which the listeners know everything about this event, like through and through, right? And Bracken walked them through all six hours and Bracken's done nothing but just sing your praises. So, um, which, which it sounds like a, he had a great, a great experience. So I guess, how are you affiliated with the whole thing? Cause I'm, I'm blind here. So I'm curious. Well, I have listened to the podcast some. Yeah, I put it on when I work and check it out. I love to know about the people that support us. Like that's a that's a big deal. If you talk about us, if you support us, if you run our events, you know, you invest in us, we want to invest in you and are aware of what you're doing and what you're up to and what you're about. Um, 
So it's actually like at my parents' house. And uh, it was a logging road from, it was logged back when I was in middle school. So uh, the loop's kind of always been there. COVID had the trails just crazy and we couldn't really train. And I got tired of jumping over dog leashes and dodging people on the trails. So I was like, well, I'm just going to train out here. We invited our friends out and then they wanted to do an event. And my parents said, yeah. So that's kind of how everything uh, came to be. John wanted to do a last man standing because we didn't really know what format a one mile loop would suit. And we wanted to do something different. So it was really the race is a collection of all of our friends and ideas. <laughs> so I guess it's my little, you know, I always wanted to do an event. So it was kind of like my little dream child, but I had no idea what I wanted to do, but I always wanted to bring people out there to run through the woods where I grew up running. So, and I went down there solely to support Ross. It had a great experience. And then afterward decided to look everyone up. Same kind of thing. Like it was a cool situation. Obviously, these people had a connection to endurance sports more than just I'm going to put on a cash grab event, which Kirk and I see a lot of cash grab events <laughs> in our in our time. And in yeah. this in yours was just so clearly not. So I did the opposite of what you're doing, you know, just or same thing, but from the opposite side, find out about you guys. You were on a few podcasts, put out a few of your own, listen to that and realize, well, this isn't just an event like you're a racer and you're a coach and we are in the middle of our coaching philosophy series. Mm -hmm. So we're at this point where at the end of the year, most people have finished whatever their, their season goal was, whether or not they hit it's immaterial at this point, but they're at the point where off season's kind of beginning, look to next year, hire a coach, write my own training, find out what I want to do to be better than last year. And so we've, We've, we're just having a string of coaches on who will all talk about their philosophy of training. And this is like, some people have high mileage, some have low mileage. Yeah. Some people are like, you must strength train all the time. Others are like, strength training is ridiculous for runners. Like every school of thought so that the listener can then pick through it, choose what speaks to them, what they find to be true, and either find their next coach or find their next principles of training to implement it into their own for next year. Just because it's off season time, it's time to start tinkering or rebuilding. So we have not yet had the ultra perspective and it was cool to find out you were an ultra coach and we have quite frankly struggled to have female coaches come on here. Really? Yeah. And I'm not Mm -hmm. entirely sure why, but we are, we're in need of that. And you, like when I found out you were not only an ultra coach, but then I listened to one of your episodes and realized, oh, there are people who can coach ultras, but you can also speak about coaching <laughs> ultras, which is not everything every coach can do. So it just seemed like a good fit. We just got done talking all about the race and now it's just a nice smooth segue into having you hear and speak about ultras itself because it's it's kind of the every man's sport, even though it shouldn't be. Everyone can go out and walk an ultra oh, yeah. and then try to jog it next time and then try to run it. Long intro, that's what the series we're in right now. And so we obviously want to start by getting your background and learn more about you and kind of lay the groundwork for why people should care and listen about your your philosophy. And then we're going to actually get into your philosophy of training. So that's kind of bringing you up to speed with what we're doing in this series. Well, thanks. I'm, you know, I'm honored and I'll say ultra running is, it's my passion 100%. Like, and I hope that the event reflects that. And I hope that, you know, that comes across in my coaching philosophy. That's, 
this is what I live and breathe for. And it's, it is my sole purpose on this earth to show people their strength through ultra running. So help it. Really? You believe that that intensely? Oh God. Yes. Like, I mean, that is currently what we're working towards is so that we don't, that I can just coach. That's it. Just solely coach and help people. You know, we have um, a business we call like rent a crew. We go out and we are hired to crew people for events, run, pace them, do everything. I mean, right now we're also in the process of creating like a run venture company so that we can go and get people out on the trails and do organized training runs so that people can spend a weekend in the woods running and training and be supported. I mean, it's, it's all I want to do. When you, um, when you say like, it's all you want to do, does that mean like you are working a traditional job and layering this on top of it right now as well and working towards getting rid of that whole traditional situation? Is that what I'm hearing or no? Yeah, I own a, a house cleaning business. Um, I was restaurant industry. Oh. I managed bars and bartended for 16 years and uh, said, fuck that shit. It- Su- super synonymous with endurance. <laughs> I imagine that lifestyle. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, staying up all night and being on my feet for long hours, it, it actually really did translate to ultra running. You know, I think that's a hmm. big place where people struggle is they sit behind a desk and now they've got to go spend 20 hours standing or 18 or 16 or whatever moving and their body can't be standing that long, you know? Um, and so for me, it was a pretty natural progression. I'm like, I've barged into 21 hour shifts when we do big events. Like, that's fine. I, I can do this. So, um, you know, and the stress and problem solving, it all translated really well for me. Here I was joking. And now you just put me in my place. Like, <laughs> yeah, this translated. <laughs> I mean, but also too, you know, there's a lot of drinking and partying that goes on with Barton and stuff. And there's a lot of days you feel like crap and you learn, even if you're throwing up out back or feel like shit, like you have a job to do and you have to get going. You can't just like go home. You can't be like, especially when you run the show and you're there to manage and bartend and expo and y'all are short staffed and you only have four people to run a restaurant that's doing $10,000 that day. You don't get to just go, you know what? I don't like really feel like it. So you just learn to suck it up and realize that how you feel doesn't matter and you get through it. And when it's done, it's done. We just stop right here. Like people took that away right there. <laughs> just getting through when you don't feel like it, suck it up and get it done. Yeah. Truth. I never called out. That was one thing, even when I had like kidney stones and all sorts of other stuff, you know, when I think if I had been a regular employee, it would have been different, but that was not the case. I was the leader and I had to be there. So didn't really matter. So you, um, so you're not doing that. You have a, a cleaning business. And so it seems like you're a little bit of an entrepreneur here. But ultimately, you'd like to make your all of your efforts, which you're not far away from, into the helping others in the endurance coaching realm. Is that right? Uh, yeah. You know, I knew I always wanted to, but the race was the race was significant for me. It was a big turning point with all the people that I met and the feelings that I got from it. So, I was initially trying to scale my cleaning business and build it out so that. I didn't have to clean personally. I could hire people to do it. So I was doing about 20 houses a week before COVID hit and COVID shut all of that down. So I had always wanted to do coach certification and all of that. Now, prior to that, the three years prior, I had mentored in an ultra training group anyways. Twice a year, we trained people for 50Ks and I went through a local store to do that. And we had group runs. So 
coaching and mentoring was not new to me, but I wanted to do that on my own. Anyways, um, I had all that time with lack of houses and everything shutting down. So did certifications and then said, okay, started offering it. And honestly, I didn't, I didn't realize it would take off like it did, but I guess it was so much of what I'd done investing in the community. So many weekends a year, we are at races, we are volunteering. I am always at runs. I race a lot. I have not these past couple of years because I'm usually crewing or pacing other people rather than doing my own races. But I think just that genuine organic presence in the community really, um, really helped kick that off. So that, uh, that took off. Then we had the race and I was like, this is what I want to do. So I don't want to, I mean, I love hosting races, but helping people, helping them realize their strength and their passions and letting what you learn in ultra running translate and transform the rest of your life and shape it and mold it. Because I know that's what it's done for me. Ultra running quite literally saved and changed my life. That's a whole other thing, but, um, we're not going to leave that alone. Are we back? <laughs> no, let's start with the whole other thing. <laughs> um, but yeah, so most of what I do now is coaching. I still clean a few houses a week, but I'm putting my faith in the universe and God and just slowly cutting back and saying, okay, you know, as I pick up more clients here, I think currently we're coaching about 20 individuals. Um, and as that grows, just kind of letting cleaning go. So eventually it'll get there. When did running enter your life then? If you were doing the the bartending ultra scene, was running present already or did that come in later? So I ran track and cross country and um, I was really competitive in those. But in, I only in high was, school, sorry, in high school? Yeah, in talking? high school. Yeah, in high school. Um, initially, I was a basketball player. I played basketball from fifth grade up until I think junior year. And I got into running because of basketball. The track coaches saw me out on the floor and they were like, do you ever get tired out there? And I was like, no, not really. So I uh, got roped into running. I was good at it. I did not enjoy it. I enjoyed the competitiveness of it and the fact that it wasn't based on a team because for so many years, you know, you play on a team and you're only as good as the team. If the team's not playing well together, you can have your best game, but you can still lose. And what I really loved about track and cross country is that's on me. If I have a bad race, that's on me. It doesn't matter what someone does. I mean, I did the four by eight relay, but everything else I did was open. So that was a nice change of like, oh, cool. I can see the, I can feel good about what I put in. Anyways, um, I kind of ran trails just for fitness and bullshitting throughout my 20s. And then yeah, somewhere around, yeah, because I've been at Ultras for about six years now. 2930, me and my best friend's brother were day drinking and he was like, I want to run an ultra for my birthday. And at this point, I'd never even ran a half marathon. I never did road stuff, nothing like that. And I was like, all right, yeah, let's do that. And I was like, I don't even know how fucking far that is. And he's like, well, it's 31 miles. I was like, yeah, fuck it. Let's train. Let's do it. <laughs> and uh, I actually followed through. I got with a training group that I ended up mentoring in. And about six months later, I ran my first ultra. I went half marathon, ultra um, 100k. I ran my first 200 milers in 100 in 200 mile attempts. Um, so I did not even go about getting into running in a 
typical way. There was no buildup. Is that typical for you? Does that kind of exemplify the Becca process? I'm, I see something, I'm just, I'm in. Yeah, uh, my attitude to pretty much everything is fuck it, I'll figure it out. Like if I want to do it, I'm going to do it. <laughs> like I don't, I don't have a whole lot of, I mean, I'll come up with a loose plan and really get down to details, but you know, you can spend two or three months thinking about what you want to do. And I'm more of a go for it. We'll figure it out as we go. So now we ended up with a race. <laughs> but something like you don't make like a fear-based decision. Something I say, like I like to say to my clients or athletes, like never make a fear-based decision. And half the reason, no, almost 95% of the reason people don't jump into an ultra when they probably could is because they're scared, they're fearful, and then they don't. It's like, never make a fear-based decision. You're right. Put it on the books. You'll fill in the details along the way. Yeah. That So that was, how old are you, how old are you now? Uh, 36. Okay. So it's been six years of this and you ran a hundred K within your first year mm -hmm. of that day drinking moment. Yeah. <laughs> it's almost shocking how many people I know that got into their first endurance race while day drinking. <laughs> really? Or, or night drinking, but usually it's sitting around camping or a fire and someone's like, you know what? I've been thinking about running in a 50K. And so I was like, yeah, I'll do that with you. Yeah. And then the next morning, they're like, hey, were you serious about that? And they're like, yeah, and we signed up last night. And like, okay. <laughs> and then they they start down that path. But it's there's that personality similarity between the two that carries over. Yeah. Yeah. We've definitely talked some people into their first 50s and 50Ks and 100 milers while we're sitting around. I'm like, get on ultra sign up. Do it now. Do it now. What was it about? Okay. Like, if that's your personality, I understand like a little bit how you can go like all in so quickly. Like, what was it about that first 50 K that made you decide you were all in? Like, what was, what were you feeling? How, what were you thinking? What was your thought process? All of that, that made you just click. Um, you know, I really enjoyed the long runs and I made a good friend in the group. So her and I were just going to do it together. Um, Honestly, there wasn't a whole lot of thinking. I thought it hurt a lot. And I realized in that, that um, we didn't run slow enough in training. That was like the biggest takeaway from my first ultra was I did not train my body to move that slowly for that long. Um, so that's a big part of my philosophy now. Um, that's something that's very much rooted in that. Uh, but, you know, it felt good to have it done. I hurt a lot. And even afterwards, I never, I never looked to the hundred mile distance. I was never like, oh, I want to run a hundred. I don't know exactly when it clicked. I think it was after I did like a 40 mile run through the Smokies. I think it kind of like clicked then, but I never, for me, I never looked to the hundred mile distance. I never was like, that's a box I have to check. I went, I ran that hundred K. And I decided I wanted to do a 200 because I liked moving for a long time. The 100K took forever. Uh, I ran it with a buddy. He came down. He needed something for Leadville. And he uh, was not a, good at climbing. And this one had a lot of climb, um, like I think 16,000 feet of elevation gain in a 100K. So it took him 22 hours. <laughs> and I was like, all right, well, I'm in this with you. I'll, I'll stay with you because he's like, you can go. And I realized I enjoyed moving for that long and having to problem solve and manage pain and figure out, you know, what was going to happen next. I enjoyed that. And I said, 
you know, I want to do 200 miles because I knew in my head I could do 100. I was like, I, I can move for long enough to cover that distance. So, yeah, I guess that didn't really answer the 50K thing. But 50K was just kind of a, all right, I guess I did that. <laughs> um, that hurt a lot. Now, how do I make that not hurt? So it was, see, I got, I got, I had a friend that I was training with and it hurt a lot. And those two things were appealing enough to continue doing it. Yeah. There obviously must've been some sort of satisfaction or some sort of like will to better it or something I would assume. Right. Um, I wish I could say there was some deep answer for that, but I just really like being in the woods. Like that's, I loved the energy and the feeling around it. The, the sense of accomplishment was good, but I never once doubted I could do it. Um, I've been very blessed to be, uh, to have a strong sense of self and know if I make my mind up to do something, even if I don't do it the first or second or third try, I don't get down on myself. I'll always accomplish what I set out to accomplish. Maybe that time frame isn't when I want it to be, but um, so I guess never like had any doubt. So there wasn't like a, yeah, I did it. It was like, okay, that's done now. How do we do that? Not so awfully. <laughs> that That's the first rationale for doing ultras that I've heard. I just like being in the woods and in the <laughs> mountains, but it's, it's simple and it's sustainable. A lot of people like to say, find your why and remember your, your why when you're out there. But at some point there's a low enough low that no external why in the mm -hmm. world matters anymore. I've been personally in a race where I had, you know, tens of thousands of dollars on the line and it could have been tens of millions. It wouldn't have changed my motivation. I realized I don't want to hurt anymore mm -hmm. bad enough to get any amount of money. <laughs> and most people would say money is the biggest why that like, yeah, I'll do anything for money, which most of us would. But if you simply had, I like being out here, yeah. that's that's connective enough that you can you can hold on to that through bad patches. I like that. Yeah, I, I think that that's really just the most honest way to put it. Like I I enjoy being out there. There's nowhere else I'd rather be. Like being tired and laying down on a log for 15 minutes is like my favorite place. <laughs> <laughs> After that fatigue is earned, of course. Yeah, I mean, like there's a lot of people that the nighttime sections really bother them, and they they are they don't like that. What about if I'm out there alone or there's bears or stuff? I personally, I love to run alone like 2 a.m. in the middle of the night and looking up and being able to see the stars and hear coyotes off in the distance is if I had to pick a why, that would be why is that solitude, that time, that stillness, that quiet while everyone's sleeping and you're just out there moving. Have you ever DNF'd an event? Oh yeah. 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 I've got some. Um, yeah, there, there's a nice little list there, <laughs> but all for very different reasons. Yeah, and that's what I want to hear because a lot of the reasons is people decide I don't want to be out here anymore. What, what are for someone who just likes being out there? What are your reasons for DNFs historically? Um, you know, there's some stuff I've done as training runs, like just um, past couple of years I've done Potawatomi 100 is a a training run for cruel jewel that which saying using 100 as a training run is stupid, but I used it a lot to, for time on feet and dial in nutrition rather than I'm going to race this, you know, and that's, that's another big thing. People DNF stuff because it's a goal and they realize they're not going to hit their goals or, or whatever. Um, I've stopped some stuff because of stomach virus and I'm, I'm DNF because of that. I signed up for another hundred um, because, well, I didn't sign up. It got transferred to me and 
I hate running roads. I do not like running roads. And apparently 70% of this sucker was freaking roads through like rural bumfuck Kentucky. And it was awful. And the rest of it was on like these rutted out off-road trails. It was just awful. I did like 47 miles of this. And I was like, absolutely not. This was free. I'm done. I'm going to drink beer with y'all and hang out and like keep crewing. Um, I DNF'd Bigfoot 200. That was my first time I ran 100 miles. I tore the tendon on the top of my foot at mile 80 and I dropped at 131. So that was like, that was my first DNF. (laughs) You only hung on for 53 miles. Yeah. (laughs) With a torn tendon. (laughs) The, and the thing about that one was, you know, that was my first DNF. Um, and I went out, that was my first trip out West. I went by myself. I had no crew. I knew nothing. I had never ran more than 60 miles. I figured out a lot. There was a part of me that was frustrated afterwards. And I'd say that that's the only DNF that really gave me some feelings and not that I doubted my ability because I wasn't even sore afterwards. I did 131 miles and was like, I can still go. Now my foot won't move. It was, um, it was not good, but the other ones say we quit at Potawatomi this year. John and I went up there. Our brains were not in it. And I finished that hundred two other times and it got so sloppy out there. And I was like, you know what? I do not want to do 31 hours of this. And I was like, it's going to take 30 hours. And I had to crew the next weekend and pace my buddy for double top 100. And that is a tough 100. It has like 26,000 feet of gain and is down in North Georgia. And I was like, I'm going to have to run 30 or 40 miles with him. I'm not even going to feel recovered sleep wise until like Thursday. And then I'm going to be up a whole nother weekend. And I was like, screw this. And John had stopped. So I was like, you know what? Let's go home. Like we have an eight hour drive back. I don't want to do this for 20 more hours. (laughs) Let's go get warm and we can be home in Nashville in a few hours. So that was a reason for one. I don't know. I guess it's, they all vary. That's part of the, I mean, that's a rhetorical question, isn't it really? If you do ultras, like, have you ever DNF? Well, yeah, it's just the question is like how many Yeah. and how how many reasons, you know, things went wrong. Yeah. I I have a question that popped up. It's a little bit on top. Did you hear that? What was it? My garbage can just blew over. Hey, two peas in a pod. If they go across the street, then we're yeah in the same boat. I'm curious, just like hearing how infused this is in your life, like you're pacing and you're racing on your own. I mean, your list of DNFs I couldn't count on one hand, let alone how many you finished. Like, so this is like really heavily infused into your day to day. Did you fill that like this that space before you found ultra running with anything else in your 20s? Or was this like a reawakening for you at 30? I guess I want to just a little more backdrop into that. Like, was there something that you put all your emotional and physical time energy into before this? Or was this, yeah, your, your coming out party, so to speak, and reawakening? Uh, definitely a reawakening. You know, um, I became a single mom at like 23, I think. So, um, you know, there was still a part of me that had to be very much grounded in that. But whenever I had free time, like we were drinking, hanging out. And my big thing was going to like music shows. I loved live music venues of like little small things. Like I have like my little list of bands and artists and I could tell you who wrote what and where, like all the knowledge that and effort I put into like learning and coaching that was all in just live music and traveling to see shows and stuff like that. But 
my energy was never really focused into anything positive, but I always felt like I had something. I didn't know what it was. I, I loved helping people. I was constantly organizing drives for coats or toys or this or that, or if a disaster came up, like I was always finding ways to, to give and put that energy towards a source of good rather than just dicking off. So um, then ultra running just kind of became that, like something came alive in my soul and I felt like I just felt so drawn to it. And I, it reached a point where I couldn't imagine life before it. And that's when like, I knew that I was walking my purpose, that I was going on the path that I needed to be on. It, nothing else existed before that. So sounds like you're talking about a person almost. <laughs> oh, it's Bracken, you went right from, and I can relate on a little different level to you there, but like Bracken, you went right from college, right into more training specifically for Spartan racing. You didn't have much of a gap where I had 12 years between college and then Spartan racing, I had over a decade where I was, yes, a fitness enthusiast and went in the corporate world and in and, and there and then eventually started my business. And I was always working out, but like I had kind of lost my purpose. I was out partying constantly and traveling around and other priorities. And Bracken, you never really had the reawakening. Like you never stepped away, for example. And although I started as an athlete and I continued to work out, I stepped away for a long time, too. So I can like understand like how fulfilling that is. I had the same thing when I started Spartan racing, like, oh my goodness, here's my second chance mm -hmm. at something great. Like, I don't know, you ever feel like you missed out on that bracket? Not to turn this on you, but like you hear this a lot with people, right? Like, like she's like, you're super lucky, Becca, to have this sort of perspective, right? You did the other things. Mm -hmm. And now, you know, like I, this is better than the other things. Do you know what I mean? And I did the other things and this is better than the other things. Bracken, you don't have that perspective. I just—it's just an interesting note. A lot of people do. I don't even know how to describe it. Almost like a a little small piece of shame throughout my running is that it feels given, not earned. Mm. Like I fell into this. I was able to do it in college without investing a lot into it, and then afterwards, I fell into OCR right away, and then in turn fell into the trails. But it was just what I knew. It's not like I went through a great awakening or a midlife crisis. It was just like, instead of earned, not given, it was given, not earned. Like I earned it in my own way, but I didn't have a personal tie to it. I just didn't know better. Yeah. And so when you hear people talking about it, yeah, I always felt a little bit of, maybe I don't have that deep visceral connection to this that other people do. And I, again, I think the surgeries, the losing a couple of years of racing was my, my like, kind of like little version of losing my twenties or losing my thirties and coming back for the, the right reasons yeah. rather than this is just what I do. I like competing. <laughs> okay. Well, well that makes sense. And nothing is given. No, let's be honest. You're being humble there. You, you've earned every, you've earned the right. to be. No, but there was no great story. There was no great like love affair with running. It was just like, I grew up next door to this person. It, it, it didn't feel as deep of a connection. But if it's innate, then then it's just always there no matter what. I don't know. I, I could argue against you there. But. I would just say I appreciated it more once I had it ripped away and then came back. But I wasn't the one who like pulled myself. So yeah, the, I had that that lack of connection to it. Like I want to ask you something now to personal curiosity too. Um, so I, I've tried to slow down my drinking mm -hmm. these days. Well, I have slowed that. Tried. I have slowed that, slowed that down. Um, 
And you came from this, this is just a, again, a personal curiosity. And a lot of people I think can relate to this before we continue your story. Like you live this life, you know, you said you committed to your first ultra day drinking. Now I want to know how you balance it all. Like, are you still one foot in both sides like uh, of life there where you, you enjoy those sort of things? Like, fuck it. I'm going to, I'm going to DNF and go have a beer. Like how do you balance the two in a healthy way? Because I, I ended up not is, is sort of where I was at. And so I'm curious now for you, cause you seem very open about like they're infused, right? Like that's how this works. Like we run and then we enjoy beers together. We do this. Like, how do you keep the balance there? What's your philosophy on that? Um, in the beginning, I didn't have a good balance. You know, I stayed very much one foot in each world and it felt like I was very torn between here's this great, magnificent thing that's, that's pulling me towards something better. And here's this comfort that I know and these bad habits and all of this, you know, crap. And it took a couple years before I really, I had to leave the bar industry. I knew that I was actually like on the precipice of it. I was in a, I'd been in a long-term relationship that wasn't unhealthy, but we were both very unhappy and not meant to be with each other. And so that um, forced, I self-medicated a lot in that. So between bar life, figuring out life and self-medicating and trying to be better, there was, there was a lot that I had to work through in my head and ultra running helped with that, that time alone of just quiet in my head, not listening to anyone else and, really having to reflect on my thoughts and the voices that I hear and the directions that I'm pulled in really helped me to decide to leave the restaurant world. That was step one in, in balancing that. Um, it's an early grave. I had already had two trips to the ER due to heart issues by the time I was 30. You know, everyone I knew that managed bars had a heart attack before the age of 40. And it just leads to nowhere. So I was out running a 50 miler and I decided out there that I was done. Um, I kind of started my cleaning business and then I decided at that race, I was going to quit when I got back. <laughs> and so I did, um, I put in my notice and then, um, another ultra I was running. That's when I decided for sure I was going to end my relationship and start working towards that. We had just bought a house together. So that made everything a lot more complicated, but, um, I knew that that was another step and I have to end the self-medicating. I have to stop with being unhappy. And um, again, ultra was another thing pushing me in that direction. And then once I stopped, I, I always ran for fun I, and enjoyment and fulfillment, but I reached a point where I was like, okay, I want to like, see if I can improve this time. I want to try and be a little competitive. Um, that forced a little bit more of, Hey, you need to stop and just an overall living a healthier, more fulfilled lifestyle where you are balanced. You have a genuine purpose and you feel fulfilled and you're not, you know, drawn to just drinking beer. Um, you know, for Cruel Jewel this year, I actually gave up drinking completely before because one, I realized it's a distraction for me. Even if it's a couple of glasses of wine, I stop being productive. I then I sit there and eat the pizza or I eat the extra crap and it's all stuff that makes me feel like crap. And I really made my mind up before that, that I was going to give that race my all. I had a time that I knew I could run 
and I had to be a grown up and I had to be responsible and I had to make good decisions in order to get my body there feeling my best self to be able to do that. Because the first time I ran Cruel Jewel, it took 41 hours. It was awful. It was traumatizing. And then this go around, I did it in 31 hours, got second place. And like, I, I felt good. I felt really good before I nailed all my goals into the last few miles. Um, but learning to balance that and realizing that alcohol has never given anything to my life. It has only taken away opportunities. It has taken away moments. It has taken away my ability to perform and do what I am capable of really was the driving force behind that. And it's something that I'm looking to give it back up again as well. So it's, it's been a thing over the years. Okay, well, good. I can relate to it. Somebody said to me after I can't, kind of came public with my uh, drinking was, there isn't a problem that alcohol can't make worse. That's <laughs> true. And I was like thinking about that. And I was like, damn, like, isn't alcohol the solution? That's why we turn to it. Like, it's, there's not a problem alcohol can't make better, right? And of course, the joke is that that is completely wrong. There isn't a problem that alcohol can't make worse. It's kind of true. Well, anyway, it was a person, not to go down that rabbit hole, oh, no, like, it was just a personal curiosity after you're talking about about the bar industry and having those habits and then having to break them. It's, even Bracken, Bracken's broken the, the, the booze habit, haven't you, Bracken? And you need a healthy relationship with it. But anyways, okay, that's interesting to hear. So you've, you've consciously chosen to back off and look what happened. You went, took 10 hours off your damn race performance. Yeah. From one year to the next, it sounds. Yeah. And, and it was, it really, John has been a huge um, helping me realize my potential. I've always been, mentally, I've always had a switch that I can flip and lock into whatever I need to do. Um, but I have a whole lot of fuck it. Like I, I have a whole lot of that. And uh, he was really instrumental in giving me the confidence to be like, Hey, you know, if you want to be competitive, you can be competitive. All you have to do is make up your mind and, you know, also put down the beer because I've been like, yeah, like I've ran 50 K's on literally just fireball and pizza. Like <laughs> you can give me a, a couple beers and I can go run 30 miles um, because I can make my mind up to do it now. Am I going to feel great afterwards? No, but I can tune that out. Um, you know, also back to the alcohol thing and breaking those habits, I really had to accept that my bar friends and the people that I had spent the past 10 years working with and side by side in the trenches, that not that they're not wonderful people, but they're not doing anything with their lives. The same complaints they have today are the same ones they had five years ago. The same unhealthy relationships that they're in now, they were still in, or it's just a repeat cycle. And it, it was a lot to have to end that and go, okay, like, I love you guys, but you aren't moving me forward in my life. So I have to lean into what is positive and what is good. And this ain't it. That is difficult. That is very difficult. It, it was, it was hard. It was sad. It was a big, um, it was a big shift. You know, when you pick up that phone and you want to text a friend and be like, what are you doing? Well, I know what they're doing. Cause I, we live like two seconds from the bar that they all hang out with. When I go for a run, I run by and I see them on the patio and every now and then I'll stop in and, and say, Hey, but it was hard because they're a quarter of a mile up the road for me. And those are, those are my people, but those are not my people that are moving me forward. So it was, uh, changed a lot of daily habits. 
Has there ever been a greater single clarifying moment than the long run in terms of big life decisions? Has there ever been anything more useful than the long run? No, I don't think so. Um, you know, it, have you guys ever had that moment where you remember it during a long run or a race where something changed and it changed the trajectory of your life? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I made my decision to, uh, to marry my wife on a long <laughs> run and I made my decision to go back home and face an argument rather than leave on a long run. And I mm-hmm. made my decision to move back from one state on that and to change my career on a, all, all of those big things. A short run's good for ideas. Yeah. A long run sees that idea through to its end point and then gives you an opportunity to make a better decision. Yeah. Right? It gives you time to get out of your own way. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. So I don't, but do you guys like set out with the intent to solve a problem on your long run? Or does it just come to you? Like it just, that's where your mind naturally goes. Because for me, I never go and be like, I'm going to solve my life problem right now. It's just like where your mind ends up taking you an hour in and then sorts itself out. Where do you guys fall on that? Bragging? I mean, it's 99% of the time spur of the moment thing, but yeah. I also know my process and, you know, Lisa and I don't, don't argue too much anymore. We've, we've improved our communication a ton, but early on, I knew that I w- did not grow up with the skills to have healthy arguments with a significant other. And so my process was leave, go for a run, rant at the sky for like 40 minutes, go through every hurtful scenario I could possibly come up with. And if she says this, I'm going to fire back with this Mm -hmm. and then run it out of me and eventually be too tired because I've been running above threshold for the last 30 minutes and then calm down and get back home and apologize. I knew that was my process and I'd, I'd use that when I had to when I was younger. Yeah, I think I still use that process. If there's an argument or tension that we can't resolve, we go for a long run together. Together? Yeah, yeah. We run together a lot. Um, When you're angry at each other? Oh, yeah. Yeah. There will be times where we don't speak for a while. (laughs) But eventually we go, okay, so, you know, listen. (laughs) And, And we get there. And there's, like, we acknowledge that that's sometimes just what we need is it's a time alone together is how we put it. Hmm. I like that. Yeah. But like, I know for me, um, you know, my process, I do know sometimes that I need a long run or a race to work through stuff because it takes me personally. I don't find mental clarity till I've been moving for at least six hours. About then it's like where my brain finally goes. Okay. That's that's me. And, um, you know, sometimes I'll pick something longer because I'm like a 50K is not long enough. I got a lot more shit I got to sort through. <laughs> so what specifically did you go through cardiac wise? Because my my grandpa died of a heart attack at at an early age. My dad changed his lifestyle early because of early warning signs in family history. I have a heart murmur and it's that's not serious, but all the time you hear like, is really endurance sports the best thing to be doing if you have heart trouble in your family? And I'm curious about yours then. What what sent you to the ER twice? And what has your process been since that? Um, so I had high blood pressure. I was diagnosed at 22 and was on blood pressure medicine. And a lot of it was due to the environment that I was in, high stress. I did not 
realize it. And I also didn't have the coping mechanisms to deal with the stress that I was constantly um, under. And no, sorry. Um, So I was on blood pressure medicine and I was kind of on and off that, but I ended up going, it was like, Anyways, it, it related back to high blood pressure. Actually, when Allie was born, she was an emergency C-section because of my blood pressure. Um, throughout my pregnancy, I had nosebleeds and everything else throughout it because I worked until about three weeks before she was born. Um, I couldn't really afford not to at that point. So, um, yeah, it was just constant high blood pressure. And then once I found ultra running and really started to make those shifts and deal with all the stress, my blood pressure started to fall in line. It was still higher than it needed to be, but it was manageable and it got it low enough that I could get off medication. And, you know, even throughout my twenties and early thirties, like I was still health conscious. Like I didn't sit there and eat chicken tenders all the time, even out throughout my pregnancy. And that was part of my frustration is I am the healthiest out of all of you people. I sit here and eat salads and grilled chicken and all of this other stuff. Now I'm drinking way more wine than I should be doing shots, but like I am healthier. How am I the one going to the hospital? I don't understand. Y'all eat cheeseburgers and Mm -hmm. Buffalo tenders every day. What is happening here? So uh, yeah, I mean, ultra running is, is really what did it. It was whatever I got from it, my body said, yes, please, I need this. And it started to work itself out. These things come through in other areas. Like I got back from this and I told everyone that this is a unique venue down there and it's a unique atmosphere. Every other race you go to, not every, most other races we go to, they have dedicated security to keep people off the course. or in lines. They have people they hire to collect parking fees. They charge you if you want to bring food into the event. And and yours is the opposite. It's we want everyone there to go take a lap or two, experience the course, see what people are going through out there. Your passion and your direct connect to why you do it comes through every other way and that you can't wait to share it. (laughs) And it's contagious. Everyone leaves your event with nothing but positives. If it's a negative, it's about something internal in themselves. Whereas the other events, people are like, oh, did you see how many water stations they had? They're not enough. Or <laughs> there was this one. No one complains about anything you do because everyone realizes that your infectious love and like need for everyone to experience it just sweeps everyone up with it. Well, thank you. Thank you. That means a lot. That's We, we definitely want everyone to walk away with their heart full and inspired by the person next to him or by themselves. You know, that is always like, we're like, how many people can we get out here to see and experience this? And yeah, we do very much welcome people on the course to see and cheer and lift each other up. You don't know this, but we, we went down there with my parents because they wanted to come experience it. And they have her brother, my mom's brother lives down there, but we all drove down in the same van. So we had, what, how many is that? Seven, seven people in the van and we all came down together And then on the whole way back, all it was, was people sharing their personal stories of the day. And I'm the only one who raced, (laughs) but they all had as many takeaways as I had with the experience. You know, my mom went out with the girls on course. My four-year-old and and six-year-old daughters were out there doing laps and just chatting up everyone. And my dad was over here and my uncle was there and everyone interacted with people. And 
they all left with talking about the experience or what they learned or something cool they saw where when we leave a, an OCR race or Spartan race or a normal trail ultra, it's like, well, I only saw people for a total of 30 seconds on course. Yeah. And then they were lost off in the woods for an hour and uh, no one knew what was going on or the map was confusing or the security was 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 harassing or it was just a parking was a nightmare or they charged they tried charging the kids twenty dollars to like all those extraneous things are what's talked about and after that event it was everyone talked about some personal connection they had to the land or the course or the people and and it's and I think it's unique to ultra this grasping it for the right reasons mm -hmm. mentality. And I'm not an ultra runner. <laughs> I've run ultra. I'm an 800 meter and a 1500 meter runner at heart. I couldn't be further from an ultra mentality to start with. I have to convince myself to find joy on these courses. And, and so I'm not, of all the athletes I coach, probably single digit are ultra athletes. Like it's just not my realm, but I still understand that it's more pure than any, any other form of running that I've experienced. Well, thank you. That means so much, you know, that you guys walk away with all of those stories because honestly, it's you guys at the end of the day, it's the runners, it's the family, it's the support crews, it's all the people out there connecting and supporting each other that, in my opinion, makes it what it is and that beautiful experience. Like, you know, people come up and, and thank us afterwards, but we didn't do anything. We just gave you an arena and you guys made it magical. Like that's it. It's it's all you guys connecting and willing to hang out and suffer and get to know each other and show kindness to one another that I think makes it what it is. So thank you guys. Thank you and your family. And thank you for sharing the story. And I think everyone out there realizes it, that they weren't prevented from doing that. And that's the big key. Like that opportunity for stripping everything down in an experience is there everywhere but most style of racing you don't get yeah you're not allowed to take that opportunity yeah I, I can see that I mean I do feel like um if I were to run our event like as a runner I think that it would be such a different environment than I think I've really ever been to at a race I think you feel that if you have like a looped race somewhere where everyone kind of sets up but Mm -hmm. it's just so different to see all the families out there and the parents and being able to watch you guys share that with your loved ones. Your concept of running with John to spend alone time together, that kind of is what an ultra is. Mm -hmm. It's spending alone time together with strangers. And it's, again, I've, I, I grew up running track, cross country, trail races now, mountain races, obstacle racing. Alone together doesn't really exist anywhere else. Mm -hmm. It's at each other's throats. This is different. I, I think you're right on that. And that's, we've always said that's kind of one of our greatest strengths is we can, we are good at being alone together. And maybe that's because we found each other through Ultra or that was something we already did and sought out. And just, you know, we can run together for hours and hardly speak a word to each other, but feel like, man, that was great. That was awesome. And then, you know, go about our days as opposed to like, oh, we didn't talk to each other. Is everything okay? It's like, no. We're just in the presence of the person you love, just hanging out, let them do their thing and you do yours. Kirk, you think Lisa's ever gone through a run without having any words spoken at her? <laughs> if if the question about DNFing and ultra wasn't rhetorical, this one absolutely is. <laughs> running with me is the opposite of running alone together. <laughs> <laughs>
I'm a runny yapper, Becca. Oh, that's okay. You really are. It, but in the best way. In the best way. I think that's a, a very valuable thing. I want to know, Becca, how you, um, as we sort of, we're going to end up progressing into some questions for you, by the way, okay. about coaching, but I want to get us there first, um, which which leads me curious then to, all right, so we had 30-year-old Becca finds ultras, falls in love with ultras, continues to focus on herself and ultras, and then suddenly what's happened for both me and Bracken over the years is now I'm a full-time endurance coach. Bracken's a full-time endurance coach. Um Suddenly that focus turns to others at some point for you, obviously. And now you're coaching athletes. Like how did that um, turn happen for you? Um, Honestly, I don't know. I think it was just kind of a natural progression. Um, I think there was a part of me that I knew some running coaches and stuff like that. And I always thought like, that'd be really cool. That'd be really cool. I want to do that. Like I want to make, I want my passion to be my life and I never really made the opportunities or understood the road to get there. And then when I had all that downtime, when COVID shut everything down and I was like, I'm going to do this, I'm going to be a coach. And I didn't know that anyone would want me to coach them, but I wanted those tools. I wanted that ability to empower people. Um, I constantly had people reaching out and asking me questions and asking for advice. I was essentially coaching before I actually coached. Um, that was one of the things that was just always happening. So it felt like a natural thing to do to just kind of make it official. I think that's the healthiest. It's it's a weird connection, but I equate coaching to politicians. <laughs> People who grow up wanting to be a politician and craving that job probably don't belong doing it. It's the people who your hometown's like, we really think you need to start doing this <laughs> because you would be a good addition to that forum. Those are the people that would make good politicians, people that don't want to be a politician. Yeah. And coaching is the same way that people are like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to, I'm going to start a coaching business and I'm going to start making some bank. Those are the people that shouldn't be allowed to work with people. It's the, all right, everyone asked me for coaching advice. All my friends, I write them training plans. It's going well. You know what? I should probably just do this and make it official. Those are the people that get how to work with people. Anyone can write a training plan, mm -hmm. but it's the coaching part that I don't think you can in initially seek out kind of has to find you. Yeah, I agree. And that's a really great analogy of a politician and coaching. Cause I think that that's, that really outlines it really well. How long Bracken did you, so for me, like I, uh, I think I probably wrote plans for friends and family and was the guy that everybody came to with quick questions for like a decade <laughs> before I decided to monetize it for real. And then in my personal training business that I have a few, a few clients who wanted to run 5Ks and I'm making plans along the way as well. Mm -hmm. I would say like my transition was very long before the writing. I, I had to walk into the wall like three times before I you know, took the door and be like, duh, this is what you should be doing. Like, I feel like that's a pretty natural transition. Anybody who's been successful in this realm, you were the same way, Bracken. You were giving stuff away, weren't you, for a long time? Yeah, probably not long enough because, my again, my timeline was shorter. Yeah. I probably gave stuff away from 2011 till 2014. Mm -hmm. And I think I charged my first client in 2014. Did that feel weird? That first charge felt weird. In hindsight, I wasn't ready. But at the same time, like a three-year internship's not bad. 
<laughs> four year internship. So yeah, I felt yeah, for, at the beginning, I thought like, what could I even possibly charge someone that would be appropriate? Because mm-hmm. it's, it feels like you're, it's just, this is common sense advice I'd give everyone. I shouldn't, I shouldn't pay, you shouldn't have to pay me for this. And then you have the sense of inadequacy, like what if it doesn't work, which still I'm sure hits me with most plans when I finally click send on it. I'm like, oh, what if I got that wrong? You know, it's even if you know that that works, yeah. you still don't know if it's going to work for that person because you can't control their uncontrollables. But yeah, you got you got to serve before you can charge, I believe. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, mm-hmm. I think 100%. And, you know, it does put some of those feelings of, am I good enough? And that feeling of inadequacy. And there was a little bit I wrestled with personally was like, Am I cheapening my passion by charging for it? You know, this is what I'm passionate about. Mm-hmm. And I feel like monetizing it is, is taking away from that. And I don't want to be a sellout. Like <laughs> that's, that was very much like one of the things that I struggled with, but yeah. you know, it is, it's, I think it's hard to make that transition or at least it was for me from like, Oh, I just want to help you to, okay, now this is going to be what I want to do. And how do I, put a value on my time when I just want to give, I just want to give it to you. I don't want you to have to pay me for it. I just want to give it to you, but it is time. It is energy and it is effort. Mm -hmm. And especially when you put in the time to get educated and know the science and, you know, make individual plans, it's, you almost have to. Yeah. The, Mm -hmm. The biggest saving grace for me was realizing that people got more out of it once they had skin in the game. Yeah. Like once they, once they financially committed to it, they also subconsciously or consciously committed to executing the plan. Yeah. Where I'll do it. I won't. It doesn't cost me anything. If I use one workout a week, who cares? Like that's not doing anything for them. And it's just costing me time. Yeah. So that, that was one piece that I like helped me sleep at night was knowing eh, they'll do it more if I charge them. But that being said, looking back, I should probably refund a vast majority of my first two or three years of training clients because again, I don't think I was ready when I started. But who is? Why do you say you don't think that you were ready? I was, and we we talked about this on a past episode, but I was still regurgitating other people's training principles and I didn't know why. Mm -hmm. I knew how to execute the plan, but I didn't know why the plan worked and I didn't know if it would work for this venue. So I was still doing things that my high school and college coaches had said, or I'd heard people always tell me, and I just regurgitated. It wasn't my belief. Mm-hmm. It was my my routine. Okay. I was using tools that were handed to me rather than tools I picked up for a purpose, and I wasn't a master with those tools. I don't know if I'm a master with those tools now, but now I at least reach for the tool I want rather than the tool that was handed to me always. So I don't know if that's clear or not. I just... I don't feel like I was a, a well-rounded coach yet. But I think you need those experiences with those athletes to become well-rounded, right? Our athletes teach us more than any, honestly, any book could. And unfortunately for them, they were the ones that had <laughs> paved my way. So yeah. if anyone is out there that believes, you know, sometime between 2013 and I don't know, maybe even today that you are shortchanged, reach out. I'll see what I can do. Don't, don't put that out there, Bracken. <laughs> Becca, a question. Um, do you, so I'll be transparent here. And this is something that I actually feel more recently than previously. And maybe this is admission, maybe this is not, but 
Do you feel pressure as a coach to perform yourself to one, lead by example for your athletes and two, prove that your philosophy works or can you separate them? Do you feel like now that you're a coach, it adds an extra layer of pressure on your own performances or do you keep those separate? Because I do, which sounds bizarre, but I definitely do. Uh, no, that was something I did struggle with. Um, I do work to keep it separate because I always ran for fun before. And it felt once I had that certification and I had my first couple of clients that I felt like I needed to put my money where my mouth was and perform. Uh, I did Music City 50K and um, I was really like, I struggled. I had some really crappy miles because I was in my head wrestling with that. And I always tell people, run from joy and run with gratitude, no matter like what you're trying to do. And I was very much running from a place of negative self-talk and you shouldn't be doing this and worry and frustration. And for me, that experience put a lot into perspective of you, if you're going to practice what you preach, it needs to be with your self-talk, not necessarily your performance. Cause some days you can't control what's, what the outcome's going to be, but you can always control how you get through it and how you carry yourself through it and what you take from it. And that's one of my biggest coaching philosophies right there. But I do feel a little bit of the, if I have chosen it as a race to be competitive, then I need to perform. But also at the end of the day, ultras, anything can happen and how you handle it, I think is more important than how you perform. And at least it, that's what I preach is you can have a bad day, but you need to have gratitude and you need to be grateful for the chance and appreciate the opportunity that you were out there and got to experience it rather than using it as a time to get down on yourself and say mean things and say, I'm not good enough and decide you're going to quit. To me, that's the wrong way to run. That's the wrong way to run an ultra. You can screw it up. You can screw up your stomach. You can screw up your electrolytes. You can have a bad run. You can fall. You can do everything wrong and still have a good day if you walk away going, okay, what can I take from this? How do I do this better? And what a glorious day to have had that experience and learn some new things. So, I feel it, but I try to use it for good and be the example of that, even when I have a bad day. Yeah, you can't argue with that at all. I mean, that's that's really the two facets I look at as a coach is like one, you can lead by example of performance. And if you're lucky, well, a coach should lead by example with attitude, first and foremost. Mm -hmm. That is hands down the most important. Right. And that's contagious. So that's more important than results. And then if you happen to get lucky and you can lead by your results, too, that's just icing on the cake. But. I could not agree more. You teach you teach people how to be a human out there, not not really an athlete, right? And if they if you can lead by example in that regard, I agree. That's probably more important than anything. I feel the pressure to do both. Yeah, I, I guess you know, me being honest, but I mean, so cruel jewel this year was one that um I, I felt the need to perform, but also my training had not been what I wanted it to be. I ran cruel jewel on about. 15 to 20 miles a week. I I did not do high mileage. I've done high mileage stuff in the past and I really focused on strength work and I got creative throughout my days of cleaning. I was wearing ankle weights to work and bands while I worked. I, um, some of the houses I could clean rather than mopping with a mop. I put like little mop cleaners on my feet and would slide around and mop the floor and stuff that way to strengthen my hip flexors and stuff like that throughout the day doing, mm-hmm. 
uh, planks as I'm cleaning a floor or wiping out a tub. Like I use my entire day to do strength work because I knew I ran out of time to put in the miles and get those physical adaptations that I needed to be successful. Um, so that I hope there were security cameras in those houses. That would be entertaining footage. <laughs> oh, they 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 saw it. They knew my my houses know, um, and I'm they were entertained by it for sure. <laughs> but um, for me, that was an opportunity to show that strength work is important, attitude is important, and you don't have to log high mileage to be successful. You know, I ran 107 miles with 33,000 feet of elevation gain, took 10 hours off that time, and had a, a strong performance by just being positive, being present, being focused, and not having to kill myself throughout training. Um, I also believe very much in low heart rate for your long runs. And so my long runs were done like that. And getting on the stair climber, my training was very unconventional, but it's also the stuff that I believe in. And I really wanted to showcase that you can do that. And you can also run in sandals because I really like running in sandals. (laughs) Well, this is like the best possible segue into the actual coaching <laughs> questions. You touched upon a lot of things here we want to talk about. Oh, okay. And we we love, like, we're, we preface most of these with this, where, like, these questions for coaches, we're not here to debate with you. We're here to put your stuff out there. This is a platform for you. Go. But that being said, we love finding unconventional ways to train. Not everyone gets to live at the Olympic Training Center and dedicate 60 hours a week to their craft and the other to sleeping. Yeah. So we love finding unconventional ways to bulletproof your body, to be able to handle the demands of the race. And I love the idea of banded, uh, like floor walks. <laughs> <laughs> I just picture you doing banded monster walks while scrubbing the floor with your feet. Yep. That's fantastic. <laughs> that was what it did. In a recent conversation, Bracken and I had, I said my perfect running shoe would be to duct tape a pair of Birkenstock sandals to my feet. Do you remember that Bracken? Yeah, and I said you're high. Yeah, and now here we go with Becca saying she wants to run. She runs in sandals. What is this about? What is this sandal running about, Becca? Um, so I run in the Tiva sandals with like the little Velcro straps. Those have been my go-to for the past few years now. Unless something's super rocky, um, that's what I'll run in because I got tired of like having blisters, well, blisters is a whole thing too. It's because you've not found the right shoe and sock combination. That's a whole other thing. But, you know, your feet swell and so much crap gets in there. And I realized I didn't have any feet trouble if I just ran in sandals. What is this shoe? I want to Google it while you're talking. The Tiva sandals. Uh, Greg Armstrong also wore them at Vol State. I was not aware of that at the time. But I got into wearing sandals. This is This goes back to my drinking days. Um. I stayed after work and was drinking and had to go to our group run and I forgot my shoes. So I ran in just flip flops and I was like, this is so much more cush. My like little Tiva flip flops and they did not have strap sandals or anything or I didn't for that one. And I eventually got some of their sandals because I was like, they're so comfy. They're absorbed, like they're shock absorbent and it just worked for me. Um, you know, I plan on, I've got a 200 miler in Ohio in, at the end of September, John's like, well, what's going to be your shoe plan? I'm like, Tiva sandals. And when my feet hurt, I'm going to wear Crocs. Like, (laughs) I don't care. I'm not putting shoes on my feet. Wow. You can take a look behind me and see my philosophy on shoes. (laughs) But at the same time, flip-flop running, true, like just thong foam flip-flops is truly enjoyable for me. 
Yeah. I don't do it for training, but if I'm like, when we're out camping, I'm just wearing flip-flops all summer. Mm -hmm. I'll log every to and from the camper to the pool, all back and forth. And the stride just feels good. Yeah, it does. So good. You, you, you wear socks. You wear socks with these Tiva sandals? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I would. Okay. Because I'm looking at them right now. I don't, you probably can't see, but is this a similar sandal? Yeah. The straps around the ankles and then no thong, but like tight around the forefoot? Yeah. So, so your your running shoe costs you sixty nine ninety five, and Bracken's got twelve grand of shoes over his shoulders. Is that what you're telling yeah, me? and I get like a thousand miles. This is my retirement, Kirk. <laughs> a thousand miles a pair. Yeah, it, it's about a thousand miles. Unbelievable! People just look up, look up Tiva Hurricane sandals if you're listening to this, and just get an idea what this crazy woman's running. <laughs> I, I now I'm kind of curious to be honest with you, but wow. And those don't blister. I'm just, I'm looking at them as I'm talking. They don't blister where they hug the top of your foot, where it meets your a- ankle. They don't blister on the forefoot. No, because I wear socks. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. What's descending like? Uh, It's fine. I mean, it, if it's wet out, it can get a little gnarly. They don't have as much, uh, you know, grip as you'd like. But, you know, you learn to make it work. Adapt and overcome. <laughs> <laughs> that like two minutes that you go downhill probably isn't going to have an overall, you know, difference in your time. Um, yeah, your feet can slide a little bit, but hence the socks help with that. And your feet dry out. So if you're doing a race with a ton of creek crossings, then you don't have to sit in wet shoes. And you don't have to keep changing shoes. I, I cannot stand to sit there and change shoes. And as soon as you take your shoe off, then your foot starts to swell. So then you've compounded another problem that you're already having. So if your feet swell in those, you just loosen it a little bit and you keep rolling. Kirk, I did over, I had over two hours of phone calls yesterday about uh, performing surgery on the soles of shoes and swapping out for mm-hmm. other soles of shoes. So Becca, I just did. And I, a guy I know, Glenn Race, Kirk, he and I talked for almost an hour yesterday. He took the Nike Vaporflies, he sanded belt ground off the bottoms and put a pair of VJ Irox on the bottom. So lugs. And the key is E6000 glue. So Becca, if you're interested, you could actually apply trail tread to your Tiva sandals and it will hold. I love that idea. We've uh, we've kicked around our buddy Forrest who helps us put on the race and everything. He's uh, said, have you tried Mega Grip on the bottom of your Tevas? He was like, because you can put Mega Grip on there. Mm-hmm. He's a big believer in it. And he has actually watched some of those videos of people like swapping stuff out. So that is good to know. Yeah. I, I do want to ex- play with that. Now, I will say if I wear your shoes. So right here. It's on Amazon. <laughs> E6000. Okay. It's waterproof. It's flexible. He made it through like four weeks of trail training and a Spartan race with new soles on the bottom with no decoupling. Huh. So what's your plan? You have a, you have a brand new tube there, Bracken. Clearly you got some something yes. in the works. What are you doing? Yes. So what are here's you doing? the plan. Okay. This is a, whoa. Sockney Endorphin Pro here. For high rocks, there's a, high, a competition where you have to do 1,000-meter runs with strength stations in between. And one of the stations are sled pushes and pulls. So I am going to remove the orange and the gray, and I'm going to replace it with the bottom of the Nike Waffle XC cross-country shoes and then grind it down so it's almost flush with the rest of the shoe, but it has a traction strip down the middle. That's the plan. That's genius. I love that. But for a sandal, you could remove an entire, let's say... 
you took this shoe and removed the entire lugged and studded bottom, you could simply glue it over the sandals and have no decoupling. And now you've got an option for technicality. I love that. I'm going to have to get forced on that. <laughs> I'm going to have to just drop off a bottom. It's like $6 a tube. I feel like it's one thing to go run like an easy long run in training in those sandals. And then another one to be like, no, that's my race shoe, bro. Like this is what I, this is what I race in. I like, guess that's leveling up like in every sense of the word. <laughs> what happens when you kick a rock? Well, you have to pick your feet up that, which helps with your gait and your overall, um, you know, stress on your body. I'm a big believer in mid foot strike too. So it helps with that. But yeah, you learn to keep picking your feet up because otherwise it sucks. But you have a lot of stuff that will go underneath your foot. And every now and then I've, you know, gotten stabbed by a stick. But for the most part, you learn to watch where you're going and not drag your feet. Because if you drag your feet, it hurts. (laughs) I suppose you have to be mindful the entire time. You do. Uh Especially in the dark. Yeah. So you will, so you're, in your next ultra, you will wear these Tiva sandals, and your backup shoes will be a pair of Crocs in case your feet start to hurt. Well, it'll be a road 200, back to the point that I don't like road, and this will be my third go at a 200, and I wanted something that would push me out of my comfort zone, so I picked a road 200. Um, so I should be fine in a pair of Crocs. You know, put the little back down, put it in sport mode, and walk or cruise. So, <laughs> and will will there be a pair of traditional running shoes as an option for you, or no? No, I mean if I wear shoes, I wear um, ultras, but I I typically don't wear shoes unless something's got like a lot of briars or rocks, and I kind of have to protect my feet and toes. But if it's just a normal trail race that's not crazy technical or remote, then I'll wear sandals. But no, 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 no shoes on the road, just. Just my sandals. Wow. I see myself parting with sixty nine ninety five here in the next few days and trying this out for you some try reason. it out? I, I don't know why. It just it just interests me. I don't know why. It just does. Because I love sandals. It's all I wear around when I'm not wor- running. I mean, I have Crocs on right now as I'm talking to you guys. <laughs> and I have flip-flops next to the door. And I'm constantly, I like my feet to just be open and exposed. So I keep drilling the sandal point bracket because I'm like oddly curious about it. Yeah, I think it's the Tiva Universal is what I wear. I have a couple different pairs but that's the one that i typically run and race in because it it doesn't it only has like that much of a a heel on it but yeah i think that's what it is universal wow didn't see this going this direction today i like it (laughs) Bracken, you want to jump into uh into our our, our question and answer yeah yeah let's do this okay question number one what's your philosophy on footwear (laughs) he's serious i know that's actually usually our first question for coaches so it your personal philosophy i think we get let's have your overarching general philosophy on how athletes should choose footwear um you know a lot of it i think comes down to you need to understand your gait and where you push off and what shoe is going to be best for that and that's again we're working with a coach or going and having your gait analyzed really helps. I know Fleet Feet and some other running stores do that and kind of can push you in the right direction because some people just want to wear shoes that look cool or because they like the brand and it's not actually the shoe that they need for their form. Um, 
me personally, though, I do push my athletes in ultras to convert to a midfoot strike because it is the most um, shock absorbent on your body. And if you are going to be moving for 20, 30 hours, 100 hours, however long some of the stuff you're doing, that's what you want. Um, so, again, that it'll vary for, for everyone. But footwear is super important in the footwear and sock combination because people that struggle with blisters a lot, it's because they haven't found the right combination. They're like, well, I like these socks. They're comfortable. Cool. Well, the friction that's happening ain't working with your gait and the shoe, man. Like you need to swap that up because it's not working if you're constantly getting hot spots and stuff like that. So a lot of it's have your gait analyzed, know how you run and where the pressure points are going to be, what shoe best uh best works with that is kind of my philosophy on that try some different stuff out uh rei is great for that because you can purchase shoes there and then return them up to 30 days later i know some running stores have the same return policy but kirk we haven't talked about this but i've been going through my shoe collection because i'm trying to get rid of stuff because my shelves downstairs are overflowing but i've been making a note of every shoe that's ever worked for me and you look behind me and this is like my shoe. These aren't the greatest shoes ever made. These are the shoes that have worked best for my feet. And the common theme here, I pan a little bit left and right. I don't know how much I can pan. I realized this past month, really only, I respond more often than not to a rocker shaped sole. I was trying to figure out why certain track spikes felt the same way that certain trail shoes felt with me with certain hokas, but not other hokas. And I had a pair of ultras that I loved. It was my first pair. And I tried another pair. I hated them. But the common theme throughout them all were soles that had a slightly rocker shape to the bottom. Uh-huh. Flat bottoms or things with a pitch to them didn't matter. It was if it was rocker shape drop didn't matter to my feet width of the shoe didn't actually matter. It was, if it has a rocker shape to it, I run a bit more efficiently and I feel better longer, but it took me until I had to look at going through all my shoes, what's worked, what hasn't, and realize they just look the same on the bottom. Huh. But that speaks to that. Know your foot, Yeah. know your pressure points, know how your foot, how your stride works. When I'm in a different type of shoe, I tend to fall further back on my foot. If I'm in a rocker shoe, I hit midfoot and I roll forward. Yeah. It makes perfect sense. I'm 34. I started running when I was 14, 12, 13. Why did it take me that long? But it's not, I never thought, how does my footwork? I thought, what feels good? Yeah. I never made the correlation between the two. How do you help somebody? You say you need to, you know, you prefer somebody to strike midfoot to um, be the most efficient as far as shock absorbing goes. How do you help somebody strike midfoot if they don't? Do you have like uh, thoughts there? Seem to be a major point of yours as far as shoes go. So one of the biggest things when I start working with someone is we talk a lot about slowing down for your long runs because a lot of people run too fast. They run by their watch rather than their heart rate. So one of the biggest things that happens when you slow down and we start adjusting by heart rate, your gait changes. And your body actually adapts to that midfoot strike more naturally because you are slowing down. Um, I have a lot of people talk about, hey, like this, this different area hurt or this like felt tight. And it's because your gait is naturally changing. Um, You know, it's just something to be more aware of. I tell people it's like that. It's the almost like a little bicycle gait. Like if you watch people, how they bring their legs up and how it flows. 
it, it's hard to explain in words. It's easier to like show in person, but it's more of that pretend like you're riding a bike, pick your legs up, put your foot down, pick your legs up, put your foot down. And you'll be able to feel where you're pushing off. You shouldn't feel really that you are pushing off. You should just feel like your hips are propelling you forward. If you can feel your heel hitting or you can feel the front of your foot going down, then you're obviously not doing that midfoot strike. All your power comes from your hips unless you're doing, you know, short burrs and stuff like that. But for ultra running specifically, your hips and your core and your lower back and your glutes, that's where all your power and force and that's what's going to move you and propel you forward. And a lot of people get into trouble and have problems by overstriding and reaching and they feel all that tenseness in their hip flexors. And it's because they're pulling and leading with their legs rather than letting the natural spring that supports your body create the momentum to move you forward. Mm -hmm. So you would you say like, so long, extended, slow runs would maybe naturally facilitate more of a midfoot strike and, and train the body that way is sort of that part of it? Yeah, that um, being cognizant of keeping your legs under your body is the biggest thing. And long, slower runs perpetuate that a little bit more naturally. Um, and it gives you the time to slow down and be conscious of what you're doing rather than running by your watch and by feel. You know, I tell them to get a heart rate monitor and set it. And, you know, it has like a little alarm so that when it goes over that, you know that you're going too fast. But that slowing down makes you more cognizant of everything that your body's doing, how your feet are landing, how your breath and your breathing is coinciding with your arm swing and making sure that everything is more in flow. I like that a lot. Mm. That concept of if you try to hit a pace, you're going to adjust your stride to hit your pace mm -hmm. rather than adjusting your pace to keep your stride perfect. And you can always get faster with a good stride. Mm -hmm but it's really hard to just run fast without a good stride to start with. So starting slow is tedious for people, but it's the only way to eventually run fast. Oh yeah. 100%. I did a, a, a training cycle of just heart rate training, not just solid, but for my long runs. And it was crazy. I took 45 minutes off my 50 K time and I finished and everybody was like, what did you do? And I was like, I just started running really slow for my long runs. And it, it transformed my whole running. It made me a believer in that concept. My endurance was just so much stronger. I could redline and not be taxed because my body was so much more efficient at using oxygen. It was, it was nuts. Yeah. The best runners on this earth, you can't really tell how fast they're running if they're not next to someone else. <laughs> It'd be hard to say, are they running five minute pace, six minutes, seven, because their form just looks like they're just running casually. Yeah. But it's really hard to do if you haven't gone slow. Yeah. yeah. It, and it is a big, um, a lot of people feel like they're taking a step back or have a hard time adjusting to that learning curve. And I always tell people it takes six to eight weeks before you're going to see results with this type of training for your long runs. It will be incredibly frustrating. It is going to be a blow to your ego and it is going to suck. But if you don't have the patience to get through a two or three hour run at those slower paces, you sure as crap don't have the patience to get through a 30 or 40 hour, 100 miler or 25 hours. Like part of that is developing that patience to put in the work and embrace the process and know that that's part of it. And another big part of our training is walk training and hike training. Because if you 
you can run 13 minute miles. You're not going to run 13 minute miles unless you're an elite for 70 miles. You are going to end up hiking and walking probably 30 miles of that 100 miler. So you need to have an efficient, strong walk and strengthen all of those muscles. So many people at the end are like, oh, the tops of my foot hurt or this hurt or the front of their shins. And well, it's because you didn't strengthen any of your walking muscles and you just hiked for 25 miles. Yeah, that's why it hurts. And you just walked at 22 minute pace when if you had dialed that in, you could have been walking at a 17 minute pace and you could have been done two hours ago. Mm -hmm. Kirk, I call it psychopath training. (laughs) Continue. It's where you put yourself, like you said, if you can't do something boring and tedious for three hours, you can't do it for 25. Mm -hmm. Like psychopath training is putting yourself on the most boring loop you can look at. Kirk, you've probably seen it on my Strava, but where I go, there's this little patch of grass right in front of the state park, state fair Mm -hmm. park right by my Back and forth, yeah. It's a half mile down. I run a half mile down, turn around and run back. And I just do that for the entire run. And it is so terrible. But if you get to the point where you can do that, like you're a bit more of a psychopath. Mm-hmm. And then that stare at the wall without blinking for four hours kind of thing. All my long runs were done on a one mile loop prior to Tennessee. Because if you can do that alone, then you can do mm-hmm. that. But if you can't, like there, you don't have a prayer on race day. Like You got to mm-hmm. have a little bit of psychopath training in order to do something that's not logical on race day. Oh, 100%. Uh, you know, and speaking to that, you know, there's a lot of people that don't realize that they can't run alone. They do all of their runs Mm. with other people. They do all of these group runs as their long runs and they never get any of that psychopath training or time alone in their head. So when they get out there at mile 55 and all of a sudden they haven't been with anyone for two hours, they're like, Oh, well, I'm not having fun anymore. Well, you haven't spent any time in your head and you haven't dialed in that ability to tune everything out and be able to just do what you need to do and what's laid out in front of you. I love stair workouts for that. We have um, Percy Warner stairs over here and it's 300 feet of elevation gain in a mile. And I think it's like three and a half times up to get a mile. And I've done a six hour workout on there just for mental, (laughs) a mental workout Mm -hmm. of just, man, this sucks. This is boring. This is monotonous. And I don't have anyone here with me. I just, you learn to people watch and take everything in. Mm -hmm. And then you, like anything else, you learn your techniques. Mm -hmm. You learn your little mental and physical tricks for doing something a thousand times over. It's important. Oh, yeah. Training shouldn't always be bliss. No. Unfortunately. You can enjoy the process, but you need to make sure that the process challenges you in ways that are going to be beneficial to you on race day. I think. Well, transitioning to, uh, you know, psychopath training. This might fall in line. Um, what is your philosophy on the use of treadmills? Uh, and as far as uh, ultra endurance athletics go, um, what do you think? What do you think about them? Where's their place? Well, when you're running on a treadmill, you don't engage your glutes. So if you're looking to get a lot of miles on a treadmill, um, you're not going to get all of it, all that you can out of it. I mean, they're great for, Climbing and if you got to get something in, but I don't think that it's the go-to for uh, spending a whole lot of time on. Personally, uh, if you're going to do anything, do a stair climber and work on your breathing on a stair climber or stair mill. Um, you know, people call it both things. But a treadmill is a necessary evil, I guess. I do think it is good mental training, but it doesn't engage your glutes, so your body's not getting all that it could out of those miles. Do you ever prescribe treadmill specific work for any of your athletes or it's always 
like is there a time and a place with purpose is what i'm asking or is it always like real terrain no matter what unless you're in a corner um you know a treadmill if you've got to be inside or work climb on it don't run make use it as uh a great walking or hiking workout you know hike on the treadmill for three hours during work, do that walk. But um, it is good for progression runs for people that struggle to push themselves or learn or maintain that pace or keep that um, leg turnover going. I think it forces you to, but I still think it's harder on your body. And if you can get out on a road and learn to do that, then you should do that rather than substituting in the treadmill. But sometimes you got to do what you got to do and it's again a necessary evil. But if I prescribe anything, it's uh it's stair mill. Like get on there for an hour. You're like, oh, this sucks. This is boring. Yeah, it does. And it's hard. So do side steps, do this, kick back. There's just so much more you can do on that if you have to use a machine to get your miles or time. Have you found techniques for engaging glutes on treadmill? Uh I personally have not. I don't toy with it a lot. It hurts my knees. Um it, it's just it's so much harder for me to stay light on my feet that I don't really fool with it personally. Okay. I mean, if someone has techniques, I would, I would love to hear them, but I just, it's one thing that I just haven't toyed with. Why don't you tell her your technique, Bracken? <laughs> I, I cop, I cop a feel. I run with my, uh, with my hands on my, on my booty until I feel it <laughs> doing what I want it to do. Okay. Uh, no, the the best one I found is a a heavy dumbbell or a or if you have a wall behind you, uh, an eye hook in the wall in a band connected from that to your waist. So you've got to drive forward a little bit to run in place, but you have to contrive a method to engage the same muscles as you can naturally do outside. And so it's I don't know, it's a hassle for someone like me. I'm terrible at treadmill running, so I get a lot out of it because treadmill running is psychopath training for me. But first, there are some people who can just click over on a treadmill and then they cramp when they get on the trail. Yeah. What um, What is your uh, What are your thoughts or your philosophy on strength training for ultra athletes? What do you think? Where's this place? I think you have to do it. Um, a lot of people, when I ask them, you know, how many hours a week do you train? They're like, well, I train eight hours. Well, how much do you shrink train? Well, I don't really do, you know, I try to get it in. And it's like, here's what we're going to do. We're going to do six hours running. And now you're going to do two hours a week of strength work. It you, in order to be successful and not injure your body during ultra running specifically, you need overall strength. You need hip and glute and lower back strength. Um, moving over that type of terrain for that long, you cannot, you cannot effectively, efficiently, and healthily just run to run. Uh, it, in my opinion, that's what I found. Um, you need to build those stabilizing muscles. And a lot of people have muscles that uh, are not as strong as they need to be, or they have made up for inefficiencies by changing their gait. <sighs> I'm trying to, sorry, I'm trying to like articulate this. I have like five things bouncing around in my head. If you have a bad running form or bad habits running, just simply running won't strengthen them. If you have one side of your hip is stronger than the other, if you don't strength train, you will never find that. You will never adjust it. And you're going to keep having knee pain here. You're going to keep having ankle pain there. Strength training is the 
best injury prevention you can do as an ultra runner. I think as a runner in general, but once you get into ultra running and you decide to cross over into that, that realm, you have to strength train. There's so many runners that Mm -hmm. I've met that are like, Oh, you know, my IT band hurts my knee. I've got all these hip problems. They have all these problems that if they just dedicated an hour or two a week to strengthen their body, those pains would all go away with my athlete. That's one of the things we focus on is like, okay, now you do some strength training, even if it's three times a week, 30 minutes a day, the 30 minutes a day, three times a week, mm-hmm. you can prevent injury. Now, you mentioned like, um, the lower body work, the hips and all that, um, which I'm a firm believer in. I agree with you. Um, do you think there's much of a place for things above the belly button as fo- to like strength wise? Like, or is that, do you more focus on the lower half and like the hip girdle? I'm more focused on the, the hip and that area, but I think overall is really good. Also ankle and foot strength, ankle and foot strength is so important to ultra running. Uh, especially as you get into more technical terrain and everything shifting and moving and rolling, you know, if someone's going to do a race that's really rocky and technical, you need to be doing footwork. You need to be doing ankle work. All of those things need to be strong so that they stay in place and can stay stable as you move across that and not throwing off your back, not throwing uh, off your hips. I mean, everything's a kinetic chain. And if you're not making sure that every little bit of that has the strength that it needs to sustain whatever kind of effort for however long, you're going to run into problems. And most of those problems are avoidable with just a little bit of time, uh, you know, working on it. But I do think upper body is important. It's probably not as important. It would be probably the lesser that I would put time into, but that's just me personally. Mm -hmm. Those are more glamour muscles, if you ask me. More what? Glamour. Glamour. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they look good. More like just keep the physique balanced, yeah. And, yeah, aesthetically. Yeah. You gotta look good or run good, and that's science. <laughs> that's true. What are um What are some of the most common mistakes you see new ultra runners make? in training or racing? Like what are some of the eye roll worthy things you you just see it time and time again with new ultra runners, or I guess tenured, but new specifically. Running too fast on their easy days and running too much. That that's it right there. And there's a lot of veterans that do the same. And a lot of that leads to um, a lot of race day frustration and disappointment. We've heard that one before. <laughs> it's like the staple of what we believe <laughs> is run slow more than you run fast. Yes. I, I'd say that's the the number one thing that I see right there. Mm. You know, everyone brags that I did my long run. I ran 25 miles today or 20 miles at like this pace. Well, your heart rate was 155. So, well, those were garbage miles. I hope you enjoyed wasting your time and depleting your energy for nothing your body had no physiological gains for that wait a minute so you're spe- are you i trust you're speaking from a an ultra perspective mm-hmm. only when you say that yes. versus like oh you're not racing 5k's so what are you doing here sort of thing yeah um okay just curious i have a piggyback to that then okay do you have a place for eh, never mind kirk we'll get to that in a later question go ahead it I wasn't no, sure which no, one I wanted to ask next anyways. I think it fits better later. So 
Let's keep rolling. Okay. Next one. How many... Well, actually, I do have a quick question for you. I do want to follow that one up now, too, now that I think about it. So, and as far as, like, intensity goes, then, because you've been a big advocate that's been clear from the start of the easy long run. Mm-hmm. As far as intensity goes, then, does do you believe, like, passing, let's say, lactate threshold or anything like that in training has its place? Um, VO2 max type work in ultra training, or are you, like... Are you dying on the rock of time on feet over over anything? Uh, no, I definitely think that it has its place. And I believe in doing targeted workouts for that. But it also needs to be done in a block period where you are focusing on getting faster and leg turnover, not when you're focusing on endurance. Um, you know, depending on what race someone has coming up is kind of how, you know, I lay out the plan and we'll go through you know, a four to six weeks period of focusing on endurance. And then we go through another four to six week period of working on speed and getting your heart rate up and then going back to that. Um, So it definitely has its place and it depends on what kind of event you're doing. If you're looking to race 50 Ks, it's a little bit more important. Um, If you're looking to race hundred milers, it's not as important. And it depends on the, the level of the athlete too. You know, it, if you're working with someone who can run an 18 hour, 100 miler, that's different than the guy that's a 28 or 30 or 32 hour, 100 miler. You know, it's really person specific, but I do think that it has its place. I like that answer, especially differentiating. Like, yeah, if you're only, if you're only in quotes on course for 18 hours, we might need to stimulate another energy system. But if you're out there twice as long, are you ever coming close to like your anaerobic threshold? Like, no. No. Even your aerobic threshold, probably not. But if you're racing it fast and real fast, then we might need to touch on those energy systems. I assume that's what you're kind of getting at. Yeah, yeah. I, everyone's different and every goal is different, so. Okay. Um, the question I was going to ask next then, Bracken, was um, how many – to be successful in this sport, and I guess we're looking at ultras since that's your specialty, um, how many – to get like 95% of the way there, how many – days per week do you believe somebody needs to run um i guess or purposely walk to see 95 percent of their potential what's your philosophy there and how often uh four days some people five if you're you know when you're putting in walking but four days you do need a, a dick day or two of actual rest but if you're doing it correctly and doing strength training and hiking and walking really only four days of running is all you need. And that's, you know, that's for normal people. Again, if you're an elite athlete, that's probably a little bit different. You know, everyone's body adjusts differently to different, you know, training stimuli. But for the average normal human being, the mortals out here running ultras, you don't have the time or energy to run more than four days a week. And one of my biggest things that I preach is stress is stress is stress. Your body does not know the difference in stress from work, from a divorce, from emotional pain or trauma or whatever's going on, you know, the loss of a loved one and training stress. Your body in a reaction to stress releases cortisol and all sorts of chemicals. And it doesn't matter if that stress is training stress or your dog just got run over. It's all the same. And if you are constantly in a state of stress, your body can't reap the benefits of actual training. And that's, you know, another thing we've 
seen in people before they come to us is they're running way too much and they're running way too hard of miles and their body is in a constant state of stress and no recovery. So um, for the average person, a normal mortal trying to balance life four days. What would those four days look like? Um, so let's talk a 50 to hundred, 50 to hundred K peak volume. Let's say somewhere in there. Okay. So say we're looking at, that'd probably put us around like base mileage of like 25 miles a week. Your long run would be about 15 miles and that would be done at a really low intensity, low heart rate. Um, you would have a day of hill repeats depending on whether we're going for endurance or speed, they would be long or short. Then you would have another run that's a little bit more for your ego and for that speed. You know, we would do like a progression run or a tempo or something like that. Nothing long, but enough to make you move and push that threshold. And the other one would be easy. It would be a lower heart rate, but it wouldn't be as low as your long run. So um, we pretty much go by the 80-20% rule and 70-30 on what kind of mileage you're going to run. So. Okay. What if you want to be the best in the world? Well, then you better be really genetically gifted. <laughs> that's the truth, <laughs> that, that, that's, that comes down to genetics, and it doesn't matter how much you work. You are, you are still going to be limited by what your body can do. Yeah. Yeah, what's the, what's the secret to running fast is good genetics. Oh, yeah, 100%. All we can do is get close to our ceiling. And I think that more is much on like the durability front than even like the like your metabolic and aerobic capacity. It's like the ability to stay injury free and train consistently. Like you know a couple of those freaks who've never had a real injury in their life. And you imagine if you were given that gift back in Rebecca, I certainly don't have that one. <laughs> That's my ceiling right there. Ducky, you may not know it, but uh Kirk, Kirk what's that movie, Glass? You seen that? No. All right, so the movie Unbreakable, how he can't get oh, hurt. Oh, yeah. And the guy who finds him is Samuel Jackson, who can't not get hurt. <laughs> That's Kirk's lower leg. <laughs> I'm piecing it together right now, Bragging. Tell her how many days a week you're running, Mr. Elite Athlete. Right now, four. <laughs> there you go. I think it's uh -huh. the perfect number. I, I genuinely do. And it's working. It's working good. Actually, zero. It's my off week, and I'm going nuts. It's day four. I haven't done anything, and I'm sitting here twitchy as a damn squirrel. It's the freaking worst. <laughs> it's my recovery. It's my recovery week. Let's get to volume versus speed. Okay. Now this is going to be an intro. I'm going to change. I'm going to change the numbers here, bracket a little bit. Okay. For are you okay with that? The goal race numbers or the weekly numbers? The weekly numbers. The volume versus because know. you want me to keep it the same. I want you to keep them the same. All right. Okay. I'll keep them the same. Um, here's your options, Becca. Okay. Um, you're racing, whatever you're racing, I guess. Now, typically we ask this question, say you're racing from like a 5K to marathon distance. For you, it looks like your entry level is 50K. So let's say 50K, whatever you want to make it to be. Okay. Here's the question. You are capped at 20 miles per week but you can jig those 20 miles however you would like. Mm -hmm. Any speed, flashy work, hit, whatever training you need to do, you can do in that 20 miles per week. Or you can have unlimited mileage 
and time on feet, but you're never allowed to even come close to like your lactate threshold. Basically, you're keeping everything aerobic. And the goal is to race well. Um, which one do you choose and why? 20 miles a week and you can do all the quality and fancy stuff your heart desires or unlimited mileage, but all basically aerobic. Uh, I go with 20 miles a week. <gasps> You're the first person in our series to choose that. And I thought I thought she would go the other way. I thought she'd go time on feet. And to have a, an ultra coach of all people to pick the shorter <laughs> mileage is this is good. I like this. Why? Our speed-based coaches chose unlimited mileage and no speed work. <laughs> ah, yeah, no, none of that. Um, I believe in quality over quantity all day, every day. Um, you know, and for the mortal person looking to run a hundred miler, we'll cap out mileage. You won't run more than 55 miles a week in a peak week. And we only do that a couple of times. Um very much believe in strengthening your body and not beating it into submission. That is, that's the biggest thing. Targeted quality workouts that leave time for strength training and recovery. So that's why I say 20 miles a week. Um, and said, you know, I've ran several hundred milers on 15, 20 miles a week and ran well. So most of our friends, run theirs on there about 40 miles a week. Um, and it's a good way to avoid injury. If you're running all those miles and again, if you have imbalances and things that are off and, you know, not equal strength throughout your body, then all you're doing is asking for an injury. You know, if your hips are weak or glutes don't fire, well, great. You ran 80 miles, but like all you did was make one side stronger. You didn't take the time to slow down and strengthen your body. Hey, I, uh, I ran and won my first 50K, and I never um, never breached 30 miles in training. I ran 18 total miles the week prior. And then the week of, I think I was at 11 miles before race day. Perfect. So That's exactly what I would prescribe yeah. someone. <laughs> um, well, since, since this is a new answer for us, and let's use the 20-mile cap, how would you break down those four days or three days? What would you do with that? in like a peak volume sense, how would you use those limited miles? So two of that would probably be, uh, you know, maybe even three of that would be short hill repeats to get my heart rate up and strength. And then I would probably have a three or four mile progression run and either the rest of the miles would be broken up between two low heart rate runs or just do it all at once and only run three miles that week or three days that week. That's what that would look like. How many, how many miles would you save for your long run out of those 20? Uh, if you have to manage them, how many? Probably 13. Um, on average, our average long run, just base long run is 15 miles for our athletes. That's a typical Saturday. I also typically don't do back-to-backs. Um, some people like them. I think they're a little bit more for um, giving people confidence. But what I like to do is have a big stair workout or your hill workout, and then you have to do a fast run the next day. That's where like your progression run or something would be so that you have to learn to move on tired legs mm. rather than just pounding your body all weekend. And I think it helps avoid burnout. You know, if you spend all Saturday, Sunday freaking running and then tired the rest of the day, you're not going to look forward to training. 
So. Yeah, I agree with that. I think back-to-back long runs are for those who need the time. Mm -hmm. Those who are trying to be elite or those who don't have time during the week and they've got a cram on the weekends. Yeah. Like that 80 hour a week office worker, maybe Saturday, Sunday is your medicine. You know, yeah. it's your, your, your coping strategy and your volume all at once, but it's physically demanding to do it consistently. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Um, it's just I'm, mentally and physically, it's, it's just not fun. I don't, I don't know. You know, pe- that's always like a big question that people ask, well, how, what's your stance on back to backs? And it's not typically something I'm on board with. Mm. Kirk, we generally don't ask this question because it's not as pertinent to. Oh. Oh, did we lose him? Uh, yeah, I think we lost him a little bit. I'm sorry about that. Oh, it's okay. Better be. <laughs> tell us, tell us more. Kids knocked the internet router out again. I predicted it. Yep, he did. Every time. It's the same kid every time. Which one? Mira. It's Mira. Every time, our youngest. Mm. Where did we leave off? What were before what did you guys do while you were saying you were saying I was bragging to her about how high my average heart rate was during my 50k said it was 172 beats a minute I was trying to impress her right and then she said I kept that for a 50 miler for 10 hours now I feel like a yeah well she has her problems it's, it's, it's fine <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> what I was about to say is your philosophy of training had me intrigued. We don't generally ask coaches about their downhill philosophies, but whenever I hear an, an ultra athlete be like, Oh, the, my quads were shot. The climbs just killed me. I think, no, they didn't. The downhills killed you. Oh yeah. And you couldn't use your legs after that. So I think it's like an indispensable part of training. In fact, leading up to your race, I think I went, what did we say, Kirk? I went anaerobic four or five times since April. Yeah. Which is out outrageous low, <laughs> but I cranked downhills mm-hmm. like it was my job. I ran with purpose downhill sessions. So I want to know, not that I'm trying to put my theory of training on you, but I'm curious about what your way of handling the unavoidable downhill of the ultra run is, especially since you come from a part of the country, as do many people where ultras are synonymous with big vert. Yeah. Um, no, I think downhills are something that people really neglect to focus on and, you know, gearing up for Tennessee mile and mid state. I was kind of on our Instagrams talking smack because I'm like, y'all are over here doing all this vert. It's the downhills that get you. They will eat your lunch all day, every day. And a lot of people avoid them. Uh, so it's great that you attack them. That's, that's the approach. Uh, you know, we'll work. I work with that work with people on that when it comes to the hill repeats or like hike up and then then run down you know we do workouts specific Mm -hmm. for that depending on the race you know one of my approaches is okay so say a race has 10,000 feet of elevation gain you're essentially climbing for 10,000 feet depending on the course if it's out and back or what you are going to be you know going uphill you're going to be climbing for 10 miles, you need to be able to climb or descend for 10 miles. So we do stair and hill workouts specific to that. Typically a thousand feet equates a mile. So, you know, how that kind of works out. I think a little outside the box, I think in, in that, but when I put together a plan, I look specifically at a race and see how much uphill and downhill they need to be putting in, in order for their legs and their 
body to adapt to that. And what do you do? Do you focus on going down harder than you'll need to do in the race sometimes in order to build up higher eccentric loads to build up that tolerance of damage? Or do you focus a lot on the actual like worst case scenario stride that you're going to go to all day long in the race? Or are you somewhere in the mix of the two? Somewhere in the mix, you need to be able to do both. You need to be able to bomb downhill and not blow out your legs. But again, it comes back to midfoot strike and that little like bicycle, keep your legs underneath you. If you keep your legs underneath you, your quads aren't absorbing that high impact. You're, it's a full body absorption and it's not going to damage them. You know, our buddy, Tony, he got six at mid state and the man can just bomb downhill. When we were out at double top, I mean, for like two miles, I am struggling to keep up with him. And he's like, yeah, I don't ever trash my legs. And it's because he keeps his legs underneath him the entire time. He's not striding out in front of him and his foot's not slamming into the ground and all that force isn't being absorbed by his quads. His legs are just nonstop. It's, it's impressive. And I think that that's something a lot of people neglect in that training is how to get your body to absorb the shock of the downhill. And I think the big question there is how, because on flat ground, you slow down your pace, your stride gets in line. Mm-hmm. On a hill, there's way too many moving parts for the average person to be able to keep their foot underneath themselves while moving quickly without breaking too far because suddenly their heels out in front or without overstriding, like how do you teach the actual skill or is it, we're just going to put time on feet and you're going to refine it over time. It's a little bit more of refining it over time. You know, when people come out and run the murder mile with us or we're at the park, you can kind of see what they're doing and tell them like, Hey, you need to lean forward a little bit more. I know sometimes it tells you, well, you need to lean back. Well, that causes you to put your legs out in front of you and put your body at like a whole angle rather than keeping your weight centered and just working on a faster foot turnover. You know, that's another thing is having quick feet rather than just quick legs. Like you, you got to be able to move. If you are still have, you know, a two foot stride going downhill, it's not helping you if your leg, if your foot turnover slow as crap. You know, you're not avoiding the rocks. You're not avoiding the roots. You're probably tripping up. And next thing you know, your back hurts because every other minute you're trying to catch yourself. Let's go two more questions since we're probably over two hours. You're just getting there. How's that sound, Bracken? Let's do it. Okay. Yourself. Uh, Do you coach yourself or do you have a coach? Me? This is not the question. Yeah, you. Oh, uh, I coach myself. Okay, good. I was hoping you'd say that. Yeah. Um, just for the sake of this question. Well, now you cannot coach yourself. You have decided that eternal wealth and happiness ride on you becoming the best ultra athlete you could possibly be and truly reaching your potential. You have to hire a coach. You have to outsource your training without question and follow obediently like the perfect student would. Who would you hire and why? Oh, man. I don't know a name off top. I feel like I would really have to look into the athletes that whoever the coach has coached, um, what races are they doing? I would have to find something that's specific to me, you know, or whatever races I have to do to be that ultimate endurance athlete. Because if you're having to race road or flat or more self-supported stuff as opposed to mountains, you know, you got to find someone that 
then themselves understands that terrain. Um, I think a great, two great East Coast coaches um, that I know of that would do do more mountainous stuff themselves and coach that would be Aaron Saft. He's great. You know, he's no bullshit. Um, Alondra Moody is amazing. She's a beast of a female. And same with Mary Cates. Um, you know, I think it's important to find someone that understands your mindset, your philosophy, and that understands how important mindset is in ultra running and can also coach and run terrain specific for what you're looking for. So I guess that kind of answers it, but yeah, Mm -hmm. I don't think I would pick a big famous elite athlete because I would want a mortal who does amazing things. And I think that especially from the female perspective, Alondra Moody is super solid. You could consider her elite and what she does and how she's performed at Western States and grindstone and Hellgate, And, you know, she's won a ton of stuff and she's a, a beast of a female who's mentality and training approach would mimic mine. And I could follow that. You know, a coach can give you the best plan of the world. They, they can give you the most magical plan that would make you the most elite athlete. But if you don't believe in it and you aren't willing to apply those techniques in that training, then it doesn't matter. I mean, I don't, That was like one of the things I realized when I first started coaching is finding athletes that are a fit for you. You know, everyone talks about, well, you got to find a coach that works for you. You also have to coach athletes that work for you. Um, You know, I tell people if your life is a mess and you're going to be a mess, like you don't get to blame me for you not doing your workouts. I can't hold your hand and make you do it. I can give you the keys to the kingdom, I can give you the tools for success, but if you're not willing to work them and you're not willing to put in that five to six hours a week, it doesn't matter how amazing my plan is. I I can give you all the knowledge. And if you don't apply it, then it doesn't really matter. I can't find fault in any of that. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know if you guys have had athletes in the past that you decided to not work with again or have not reached back out to or just decided like, I don't want an athlete that's in that, point in their life because they will not be able to utilize the gifts that or the tools that I am giving them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And, and, and that's a good point because far too often endurance coaches just need the money uh-huh. and so they'll take everyone. But at some point you realize I'm just not effective with this audience. Yeah. And early on it was absolutely females. I was a better male coach than female. And I think that's improved over the years. Being married has been really big for me. Having daughters has been really big for me. But I certainly naturally gravitate towards coaching people that I've walked in their shoes. Yeah. I've, I could probably fit in, fit in female gloves, Kirk, but not, <laughs> not their shoes. And I've also realized I do not work well with people that need tough love in like rah-rah speeches. That's not my – when I – in high school, I coached basketball, coached track, coached cross-country. Um, I wasn't the loud coach. I was the coach quietly pulling you aside and talking to you, mm-hmm. you know, teachable moments, actionable points, but I wasn't like, I'm going to raise your pulse and we're going to get a lot out of you because I'm going to force it out of you. That, that wasn't me. And I, those are the athletes I lose or that I separate ways with are the people that need that component to the personality. And it's, it becomes imperative to weed that out in the interview process. Be like, Hey, I think you need something I can't provide. Yeah. 
No, I, I think that that's a good point. And that's one of the reasons, you know, John and I work so well together is for some of those people that need that. He's really good at that. I can put together the plan and see what they need physiologically and all of that. And he can communicate with them. We have some people that he just talks to. I make the plan. He does all the communicating. Um, and then there's people that I just communicate with and I just do the plans. But I think that's something when people step into the world of coaching that no one really tells them like, hey, yeah, you need the money, but you need to f- see who fits you so that you are the most successful coach. Um, I finally yeah. put together like a little, I call it like my real talk email about like, here's the deal, guys. Like if you're signing up, uh, I love you and I'm grateful for you, but this is also my time. And I don't like you wasting my time. If you aren't willing to put in the work, then I'm not for you. Like it it takes time and energy away to put this plan together for you. And if you're just not going to follow it and do whatever you want to do, it's a waste of your money. It's a waste of my time. Mm -hmm. I include some other very nice points in there. But that was uh, (laughs) I I felt like from a coaching standpoint, I had to put that out there. And I basically put it as, you know, when you've got kids and you tell them what they need to do and then they never listen, how does that make you feel? Well, I feel the same way when I keep giving you the tools for success and you keep not doing them. So my buddy TJ Schroffnagel put it best when he said, my training plan is not a suggestion. I like that. That's simple. I like that. This is not a suggestion. These are orders. Damn it. I, and I love that. And, you know, we always tell our athletes too, like, talk to us. If there's stuff going on, like in your life, talk to us. We can adjust the plan because if you're going through this huge, messy divorce or a big move or stuff like that, again, it comes back to stress is stress is stress. We will adjust your training plan so that you can feel successful and you can still get the miles you need. You know, you might have had a a 50 mile week on your plan that week, but you're not going to be able to get that in. And then you're just going to throw in random bull crap runs that don't do anything for you. And you're also going to feel that stress of I'm not training. I'm not doing what I'm supposed to. You feel like you're letting us down. You feel like you're not following your plan and it just compiles, pick up the phone, send a text and say, Hey, this is going on this week. What runs do I need to do? And we'll go, here's what you need to do. And we can adjust from there. Um, I think it's really important for athletes to communicate with their coach about what's going on instead of, oh, sorry, I missed four runs this week. Well, okay, thanks for like reaching out. I mean, you know, we check, but still communication. Sorry. I think the I think the most frustrating part of touching on that is when you hear about things after the fact. Mm-hmm. As in like, oh, I didn't get my things in and this is the decisions I chose to make throughout the week. And you find about it after the fact when really you're like, no, that's what I'm here for. You should have sent me a text on Monday afternoon when you saw your week going to shit already. Let me make those decisions for you so we can get the most out of this. Mm-hmm. That'd be mm-hmm. one of my probably perpetual frustrations. Is, no, just tell me real time. That's what you're paying me for. Yeah, 100%. Don't, don't afterwards. Let's do this together, right? Yeah, 100%. absolutely. It's the weird gray area of endurance coaching is that there's a personal connection, which is irreplaceable, but it also changes the way people feel the services that they're paying for. Mm-hmm. Like Kirk's, Kirk's someone who doesn't do household work by his own admission. If his, if a pipe breaks, he's calling a plumber. You know, if he needs something, he calls it and it's dealt with. But if Kirk called a plumber and they're like, here's what I'm going to do. And he said, oh no, sorry. I know we talked last Friday, but the pipe burst Saturday. 
I just did this in between. I just duct taped it and then I slapped cardboard and I'd like you to come tomorrow and fix it all. He'd be like, well, that's foolish. You have to call me right away and I'm going to fix it. He'd be like, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> but with the athletes, it's like they either respect the coach so much they don't want to disappoint them. Like you don't worry about disappointing your plumber. Yeah, He's not going to judge the state of your pipes. He's just going to come in. He's going to analyze it. He's going to fix it. And he's going to go on his way. But athletes worry about that. Or they think that because we've formed a friendship of sorts that we can let things slide. But you wouldn't with your plumber. You would call your plumber on it if he was late. Yeah. You would call your plumber if you had a cracked pipe. You would call him if you had a question and you wouldn't discard the knowledge. And if you did, you would say, this is on me if this pipe bursts. Yeah. But athletes don't necessarily treat you like the plumber at times when they really should. I, I like that analogy. That's a good way to put it. Um, cause you know, it just makes for harder conversations, you know, um, it throughout this learning process, I've had a couple of people that their lives were really messy and they thought that like getting a coach and a training program was going to fix all of their problems and that magically they were just going to have all this time to train and it was going to be the center and the focus. And it's not your life is just all over. You have no structure, no control, no nothing. And, you know, they kept saying, oh, sorry, I couldn't do this workout or sorry, I didn't do this or I did this or, oh, I'm going to go do this race this weekend and I'm going to go do that and never communicate. And then so when race day rolls around and your goal race is here, I got to have that conversation of uh, you're not going to do what you want. I'm sorry. Like your race is not going to be what you Mm -hmm. wanted it to be. And then you have to explain, you know, well, you know, I think, no, no, it's not. It's you can all but say it's going to suck. You did not put in the work to have the day that we had planned on. And that's okay. Mm -hmm. Be prepared to problem solve and be miserable and just get through it or don't run it. I mean, I don't ever like to be negative, but sometimes it's hard to find that. I have to be real with you, but be kind. I'm I'm sensing that there's been some firm conversations coming from you, Becca. I don't think you need to pass them off. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but it, it all depends on the people. You know, we, uh, we have some people that we can look at and be like, yeah, man, you really shit the bed on that. Like, and then there's some people that you gotta be like, well, listen, I know it didn't go as you wanted, like you wanted it to, but, and I don't really thrive in that. I'm more of a, I like concise, real talk. You know, I can, I can coddle and be kind and, and do the things, but you know, I, I have found, I enjoy the athletes more that I can just say, no, listen, dude, like, you screwed up or this is what we need to do. People that can take a little bit more directness, but I, I mean, either is fine with me. It's just when you're tired and hating your life, I would rather look at you and go, yes, yeah, sucks. Too bad you missed all those workouts, man. <laughs> <laughs> you never, you never quite find out until you're in, in the relationship with that athlete, what they respond to sometimes. That one takes a little while. They're usually, yeah. everybody's usually about perfect for about a month, maybe two. And then their two colors always come out. It's interesting to see like, okay, now here we are. We finally settled into this relationship. Yeah. Because everybody nails their first four weeks, don't they? It's like every time. <laughs> so oh, of yeah. course. Then you, then you learn. You, you have to be exceptional, truly exceptional to skip the first day of training. <laughs> I've seen it. I've seen it. Okay. Last question. Then we got, we really got to wrap this thing up and now I'm looking at the clock too. So um, normally we ask this question, you get one flashy workout um, and only one to do for the rest of your life. The one that you put on your Instagram is like, look at me in this tough workout they did to make me better. Right. 
Um, usually we ask for one OCR workout, one trail workout, and one road workout. So we ask for three. But since you're focused solely on the ultra realm, could you give us like your three favorite, like flashy, like the, the quality day workouts that you would prescribe for ultra athletes? I'll give you three. Is that fair, Bracken? I think that's very fair, Kirk. Thanks. Ah, see, there's not so much that's flashy about ultra running, though, other than the buckle. The swag is about the flashiest part. <laughs> but uh... your anaerobic days, what would you choose? What are your best? Um. It, it all for ultras. I think it all comes down to the hill workouts, uh, hill repeats or stair repeats. That's where your bread is buttered. That's where your body is strengthened. Um, and you know, the great thing about those is you can do them slow, you can do them fast and they feel good and they look real good on Instagram when you have six miles of hill repeats and, you know, kept a low heart rate and climbed 8,000 feet, you know, like those sort of big vert, hill repeats i think would probably be the the flashiest ones could you give like a specific setup like one that you actually might write out like what would the actual prescription look like on like a example workout there we have our percy warner stairs i said 300 feet of elevation gain at a 14 percent grade uh in a mile so i prescribe workouts on those that are anywhere from four miles to 10 miles you know on some saturdays we'll do those for three hours um, and those are mentally and physically challenging. And then at the end you have like 6,000 feet of gain and, you know, solid climbing and descending, uh, that, or, you know, find a short hill that's at like a 12 or 13% grade and do hill repeats on that, like non walking hill repeats where you have to run at that 13% grade uphill for three miles of repeats, you know, that it would be something like that. Um, I have a hill that's up literally exactly a mile. That's like a 14.5% grade that I'll do hill repeats on. And it is a challenge to run to the top of that sucker. You are so ready to throw up by the time you hit the top, it's like climbing a wall, but that's a, stuff like that, that I recommend for people that makes your stomach hurt, but gives you a sense of pride afterwards. I think that's hill repeats. Oh yeah. Hill repeats. Speaking of stuff that makes your stomach hurt. <laughs> can you explain your Strava page to me? <laughs> Because you are a lovely person like, to interact with, and you have the filthiest Strava I have ever seen in my entire life. Yes. Like if I if if I'm going through Strava and something of yours pops up, I feel like I have to hide my phone from my wife. <laughs> it, it is so outrageously inappropriate. Yep. And and it comes from like just like this tiny little thing. I just don't understand. Is that your mission or is this the true Becca? I worked in a bar for 20 years coming <laughs> I'm up. looking you up right now. Is What is the purpose of your Strava? I'd say it's a mix. I mean, I am Becca motherfucking Jones. So there's a, a lot of that um, just unfilteredness. And I think that it's funny because everywhere else, every other Facebook, Instagram, everyone's so filtered and monitored and everyone's aunt or this or whatever sees it. My sole purpose for getting on Strava was just to put whatever I wanted. I don't like sharing information and all of that. Like, you know, it's, I don't care about segments and stuff like that. But I was like, you know what? If I'm going to be on here, it's going to be as inappropriate as possible. And when I'm out on my runs, that's one of my entertaining things. I'm like, I'm, I'm reading this. through these right now. These are, <laughs> it's even more, it's, it's, it's even better than I thought. I, guess. I can't put her words into words. Well, you can. I could right now. I'm not going to, but I could. 
You're going to be the first Strava profile to be canceled. Probably. Probably. It's so funny. I'll see people at races and they're like, you've got the Strava. And I'm like, yeah, that's me. You're welcome. <laughs> Is your daughter allowed on Strava? Uh, She does not look at my Strava. So, Does she know this side of you? I'm sure she would guess it. She doesn't see it, but she, uh, I am a lot like my mother. I get it very okay. honest. Uh, my mother and father can make people blush. So, uh, you know, we've, we've never been a tiptoe through the tulips family. Now I try to be very, there are no tulips or tiptoeing in Strava. <laughs> I still am looking because I'm not very entertained. I'm going to stop scrolling. <laughs> if you have free time and, you, and, and you're and you okay with non-PC, take a scroll through Becca's Strava, just the titles of her, of her runs. <laughs> it is truly, it's either nauseating or awe-inspiring, it, it, depending <laughs> on what personality you have. It's, it's outrageous. It's truly phenomenal. And I'm always worried if I have to send like a complaint or something into them or have them fix something, they're going to see it and be like, hey, we're going to have to kick you off of here. I'm waiting for the day to come, but I'm going to enjoy it until then. You'll have to get that email framed if you ever get it. I hope that I don't get it. But yeah, it's, uh, but yeah, no, it's, it's. You're going to need a burner Strava account. <laughs> yeah. It's just unfiltered fun. And some of it's just dumb. And I'm like, ah, oh, no, that sounds dirty. I'll put that together. Oh, mission accomplished, though. It sounds like. I mean, at first blush, it looks just truly crude, but it takes true, like, poetic genius to even put some of these words together that you do. The creativity is a, is a ten out of ten. Thank you. I attribute it to the running. I think about it when I'm out there. I'm like, what sounds fun? Or sometimes it just flows. Some rap lyrics run into my head, and I mix it with regular words. I don't know. Rebecca, what is one thing everyone needs to hear today? You know, I'd say be grateful. Be grateful for the people in your life. Be grateful for your ability. You know, that doesn't just translate to running. It translates into everything that we do, whether you have a car to make it to the grocery store or the ability to buy food. Find gratitude and have a grateful heart in everything that you do. Um, it makes the hard time so much more easy and so much more bearable. Tell the people that you have in your corner that you love and appreciate them. I mean, that's, I try to live with that and make that my mission every day. Some days I suck at it, but I try. It's a beautiful way to end this thing. Let's send it out. Thanks for being on here with us. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate it. This has been fun. Thanks, Becca. All right. Thank y'all. Mm-hmm.